Cocoa Crew Podcast is hosted by Cyber Ears. If you are serious about your podcast hosting needs, you should check out Cyber Ears. Whether you are a podcaster, a radio host, a musician, a narrator, an audiobook author, or simply a school, church, corporation, or anyone else with an audio recording that needs to be hosted or distributed, you should check out CyberEars.com. Unlimited bandwidth, fast, reliable, and rugged servers with no hidden fees. CyberEars, your audio, your terms. Listen, it's getting closer. Hey, you got your Coco 3 yet? A delicious adventure into the world of retro computing news and information featuring the Tandy Color Computer. Okay, welcome back to the uh, episode six of the Coco Crew. Uh, this is John Linville and Neil Blanchard, <laughs> and we are the Coco Crew. So it is uh, just after Thanksgiving in the U.S. Gobble gobble. <laughs> And uh, Coco Fest is now about five months away. Uh, Neil, you got your projects underway or decided on for Coco Fest? You know what you're going to be bringing? I have a project in mind. You do? Is I it do. secret? Yeah, I'm going to probably reveal it probably a couple months from now. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, I've got a couple of irons in the fire. I'm not really sure if they're Coco Fest uh, specific yet or not, but. We'll see. Uh, I might mention uh, stuff, at least inadvertently, <laughs> as we continue talking. Um, let's see. Well, Five months, so, it's down to crunch time. Yeah, it kind of is getting there. Uh, Cocoa Fest is, uh, you know, the big event for uh, those of us who love the cocoa. Uh, I hope um, I hope with the uh, episodes we've had so far, including this one, that uh we're encouraging a few people to come out that uh, might not otherwise have come out or might not even have known about Coco Fest. Um, I hope to see uh, some new faces there. I hope to see all the old faces there. Uh, you know, it's uh, the venue's big enough, uh, but uh, I'd like to see us uh, blow the doors off, standing room only. Wouldn't that be cool? That'd be great. <laughs> Taking it back, Rainbow Fest. Rainbow Fest levels of, of attendance. That would be awesome. It would be cool if we had to get a bigger venue. <laughs> The Glenside guys are saying, oh, wait, no, don't, don't sign us up for that. <laughs> but, uh, no, that would be cool. So, Cocoa Fest uh, is on the horizon. Uh, for those who don't know, generally at Cocoa Fest, we have a kind of a show floor atmosphere, and um, people bring their projects they've been working on. And some people bring their projects. Some people bring stuff for sale. Sometimes it's the same thing. You know, this is my project, and here you can buy one. I think a lot of people try to to have something to show at Cocoa Fest or at least something to talk about, right? Or even if you want to come out to Cocoa Fest and just walk around and uh, chat with us and see the different displays, that's great too. 
Well, sure. Absolutely. If you just want to come and uh, put your toe in the community or, you know, you don't have to have a project to show up. It'd be nice if you at least uh, tell everyone else how cool their projects are. But, uh, you know, you can just walk around. You don't have to have a project of your own. (laughs) Um, That's always good. Come out, maybe play a game or two, um, buy some stuff in the no minimum bid auction. Uh, It'll be great fun for the entire family or at least all the nerdy ones. (laughs) Anyway, um, so Neil, what have you been up to in the past month? Uh, doing anything cool? I've been trying out other people's projects, actually. Yeah? And I've uh, been beta testing a game for John Strong. Oh, yeah? So that's uh, that's cool. coming along pretty good. It's this Minesweeper game called the Bomb Squad. Awesome. Yeah, and that uses the, uh, the high-res mouse driver, Nick and John wrote. Yeah, and there's uh, what, what kind of media is he targeting for that uh, game? Yeah, he's going to go on a ROM cartridge. Oh, yeah? Well, that's cool. I like the ROM cartridges these days, huh? They last the test of time, too. They do. They are. It's uh, You don't have to worry about your floppy drive dying, that's for sure. Let's see. Well, so um, myself, I've been uh, poking around a bit. I, well, I've got a couple of things going on that uh, I've been poking around a little bit at sort of a mini game or maybe a collection of mini games that uh, are sort of Christmas-themed. I'm not sure if I'm actually going to be able to get them uh, into a a showable shape by the by this Christmas, but uh, maybe my next Christmas <laughs> we'll have a Christmas theme cocoa game. Uh, yeah. That might be cool. Nothing wrong with that. That's great. I like mini games too. Yeah, um, I noticed that there was a, a cocoa or I'm sorry, a Christmas themed cartridge for the Vectrix that sold recently on eBay for a ridiculous amount of money. So <laughs> it must be. <laughs> Some amount of demand for these things. I know also on the Intellivision platform, there's a, a game that's been out for a few years called uh, Christmas Carol uh, that uh, seems to be popular there. So I, I think people like sort of the novelty of that sort of thing. So I don't know. Maybe someone else will beat me to it. But if not, then um, maybe I can get some sort of uh, Christmas-themed gamed out uh, in the next year or two. That'd be cool. Uh, the other thing I've been working on a bit, uh, somebody, some of people may have seen on e- on uh, Facebook um, that I was working on a um, working on an interface for uh, what started out. It's the base circuit is a is an interface for adapting Atari style joysticks to the Coco joysticks. You know, the Atari joysticks, of course, are digital, and the Coco joysticks are uh, analog. So the base circuit's been around. Oh, there's a couple of variations out there, but the base circuit, uh, uh, there's one out on Cocopedia. And uh, there's some problems with that schematic, I think, but mostly it works. And um, traditionally, uh, like the old Wyco uh, adapters, uh, they work great, except you only get the one button, like on the original Coco 1 and 2. So on a Coco 3, you're missing out on the second button. Um, you can wire up the second button, and so then instead of just uh, Atari adapters, uh, or the Atari uh, controllers, uh, you can use the Sega Master System controllers, which have a second button. So that's cool. Uh, the Sega Genesis controllers also have a second button, uh, and so those should work, although depending on the way you've implemented the circuit, you may or may not have some problems. Go the ahead. nice thing with that, there's no shortage of the uh, Genesis controllers either. Yeah, so that's a good thing to have. And then, uh, so what I was experimenting with is... Um, on the Sega Genesis controllers, actually, there's a select line, which basically multiplexes between the two buttons that by default are mapped as the button B and button C, mapped to the button 1 and 2 on the Coco. 
Um, but there's a select line that you can switch. And so then you get button A and the start button available as well. So you get four buttons for the price of two, essentially. <laughs> and so I've been uh, working a bit with a circuit to implement that. Um, so it took a little, unfortunately, it took a little time away from my Christmas mini game. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so I've been keeping a little busy too. It sounds like you have too many projects and uh, too little time. I definitely have uh, too many projects, too many, too little time, and probably too much stuff, uh, which of course brings me to maybe the next topic. Um, so how about uh, how about eBay, Neil? You've been active on eBay this month. I have, but uh, not for buying. No, uh, uh, for selling. Actually, I got a uh, tweaked and peaked, fully loaded Color Computer Three uh, listed right now. Oh yeah, posted it for a uh, Black Friday special. <laughs> cool, very exciting. Does that uh, look like it's doing well? But as for uh, buying, uh, it's been pretty dry. I I have nothing. No, no, <laughs> no. Well, I had kind of a big month, I guess. Um, the the most interesting thing um, was actually a uh, a French cocoa two. Um, so the French uh, cocoa twos actually the only cocoa twos that uh, actually put out an RGB video signal, <laughs> and so they they instead of the normal uh, uh, RF out or or uh, as you'd have on the NTSC machine or even the power machines have RF out. Um, uh, although they convert to, of course, to PAL instead of NTSC video. Uh, but on these machines, uh, the circuit's replaced with one that generates uh, RGB. It's basically 50 hertz RGB, so it's similar to what the PAL uh, machines would put out. But instead of going uh, to an RF modulator, it's... Uh, uh, breaks it out to a, a little mini DIN connector on the back, and then it comes with a cable that goes from the mini DIN to the, uh, uh, well, some, sometimes called the Paratel or SCART uh, TV connector, which was a, a popular connector on uh, machines and on the television machines or televisions in Europe. And uh, it happens that I have a, a monitor here that, that accepts the SCART input. And so uh, I got uh, this French Coco in with the, the SCART cable and hooked it up to that monitor. And I was uh, able to see an RGB out from a Coco too. So pretty cool stuff. That RGB must look pretty crisp. It does. It looks very nice. Of course, it is. It's still 6847, so the colors are atrocious. <laughs> and, but, you know, you, you learn to love them as a cocoa person. But, yeah, it's cool. You can watch, uh, you can see stuff on a, on a regular video monitor. And uh, so it's cocoaing with a French accent. Uh, so I think I'm going to nickname this machine Boise. <laughs> Oh, Boise, I kid, I kid. I love you, man. Well, in an earlier episode, one on 6809, I mentioned that there was a, a device associated with a TI-99 called a MBX expansion system, and which uh, had voice synthesis and actually could uh, do some voice recognition and had uh, an extra joystick, an extra kind of keyboard input for the TI-99, uh, which is interesting because uh, inside the box is a 6809 processor. Um, anyway, since I had not heard of it before I did that episode on the 6809, uh, kind of took an interest and, in, uh, uh, this month I actually found one at a reasonable price and I was able to acquire that, got it home and, uh, well, I haven't really had a chance to play with it yet, but, <laughs> uh, now I've got it. So, uh, 
I say it's in the 6809. Uh, in the, it's in the family, so uh, we'll talk about it here some. Oh, and one more thing, I did pick up a uh, an old data book, a, a Motorola data book from 1986. And the reason I picked this up is because um, uh, when we mentioned the, the episode on the SAM, the 6883, uh, I mentioned that. Uh, the uh, part number, the 6883 is the Motorola part number, and then it also sometimes went by the 74LS783. And you can find the data sheet for that pretty easily. Um, but then there was a later version of the SAM, um, which uh, it can support a, a slightly different kind of memory chips. And it was, uh, that's the, the SAM that's found in the, uh, the later Coco 2s that have the, um, the 6847T1. Uh, the special version of this of the VDG. Anyway, so that uh, that part goes by seventy four LS seven eighty five, and I had a lot of trouble finding a data sheet that covered the seven eighty five. But I found a reference that said it was in this specific Motorola data book, and I was able to go on eBay and find that exact data book and uh, picked it up and. And it arrived and it's correct. It does have references to the 785. It's not a separate data sheet. It's actually in the same data sheet as the 783. Uh, it's minor details of difference. But if I ever need to know <laughs> what's different in the data sheet between the 783 and the 785, now I've got the uh, the source information. So very cool stuff, right? Hey, that's good resource to have for sure. <laughs> yeah, pretty uh, pretty cool stuff. I mean, you have to be the right kind of nerd to want that <laughs> hanging around the house, but I, think I probably am. Anyway, so rather than being a, a, an antisocial nerd collecting old data books off the internet, uh, uh, you actually had a little social event uh, this past month. I did. Yeah, it was uh, pretty interesting, actually. Uh, Mike Rowland came up from Indiana. Well, actually, he found a PC museum about an hour away from my house in Brantford, Ontario, and uh, it is an hour away from my place. That's the embarrassing part. I knew about this museum for years, and I just never went. And uh, about four months ago, he emailed me saying he found this place, and you know what, I'd like to check it out. So a couple weeks ago, he came up and uh, went and checked out this museum. And what makes this museum really cool is that most of the computers are actually plugged in and, and functioning, so you can actually use them. Wow, that's really cool. I saw the pictures. It looked like an exciting place to go. How, how big was the place? It looks bigger um, in the pictures than it is, but they have so much crammed in that there's still it still takes a good couple hours to get through it all because there's, there's also two levels. There's an upstairs as well. Oh, that's cool. And so you actually could put your hands on the keyboards and type stuff on these machines? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we used to, lots of the machines, and that's where I got to try a Vectrex for the first time. Yeah. You know, I was pretty impressed with it. Yeah, the Vectrex is cool, and also a 6809 base machine, so uh, fair game on this podcast as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Definitely, and, uh, and, and just for the records, they did have Cocos hooked up. They had a Color Computer 3 with a CM8 monitor, so they're in our good books. Awesome. <laughs> Very good. Mike was saying on the way in, he said, uh, you know, too bad we can't buy anything, and I said, well, you know, I, that's that's probably a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, it's easy to get carried away uh, if, oh, you yeah. have, if you have the fever and <laughs> start buying stuff. And <laughs> pretty soon uh, your place looks like uh, a storehouse for a, a crazed uh, reject from the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's how my place looks. <laughs> anyway, well, so I'd say that's a pretty good uh, introduction, a good start for our show. So. Uh, maybe we'll uh, pause for a word from our sponsors, and uh, we'll be back with the announcements. Now, if there is any dedicated group of old computer users, it is certainly the people who still love their Coco, the Tandy Color Computer. Okay, welcome back. Uh, 
Now we'll have a uh, brief run of announcements. So this is the Coco Crew podcast, and we are available on Twitter uh, as uh, at Coco Crew Podcast. We have a Facebook page. Just search for the Coco Crew Podcast. Uh, the podcast is available uh, through iTunes. Uh, it's for available for streaming on Stitcher. And once they open up the, their podcast section on Google Play, uh, we should already be listed there. This month, we announced that we are a new member of the Throwback Network. Um, the Throwback Network is a collection of retro-themed podcasts, many of which are about technology and computing, but not all of them. There are a few oddballs in there. I think there's uh, some that are just about uh, generic 80s uh, nostalgia. Uh, There's a Rediscover the 80s podcast. There's the Toys R Us report. (laughs) Uh, I think there's even one about the greatest American hero, the old TV show (laughs) from the 80s. Um, Of course, there's also the Intellivision Areas and Floppy Days, ColecoVisions podcast, uh, Antic, the Atari 8-bit podcast, uh, Boo Atari. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I stole that one from Quinn Dunkey. Anyway. Uh, threw that in there for the benefit of the antic folks. They should appreciate it. Um, anyway, uh, the Throwback Network uh, is uh, a great source for other retro theme podcasts. If you're looking for something to, to listen to when uh, when there's no new Coco Crew podcast episodes available. Uh, the Coco Crew podcast, uh, or audio for the Coco Crew podcast, is hosted at uh, Cyber Ears. Uh, if you have needs to host a audio uh, file for uh, access over the internet, uh, you should consider the facilities available at Cyber Ears. We should also mention uh, our listeners. We've had quite a few uh, downloads. Ah, that's right. Uh, let's see. Where are we at right now? I think uh, I checked earlier and we were above 320 downloads for the previous episode and let's see where are we at now yeah so 322 for episode five i think we're at uh 427 for episodes uh, four and uh, uh 524 for episode three <laughs> not too wow. shabby was that the episode we were giving away the free cocoa <laughs> <laughs> i'm not so sure about that but uh, uh anyway uh on Stitcher, uh, let's see, our last month's total active listeners was uh, six. <laughs> it's getting and up there. So far this month, we're at five. Uh, I don't know if that's backsliding or, or if that's going to end up even. Uh, I'm glad Stitcher uh, has us as part of their uh, their offering, but uh, uh, I'm not sure how much traffic it generates for us. If you want to reach uh, us for feedback, please do. Um, by the way, we'd love to hear hear from you. Um, obviously, you can reach us through Facebook, um, or you can send us email. If you want to reach uh, both Neil and I uh, for feedback, uh, you can send it to the show at CocoCrew.org, podcast at CocoCrew.org, or feedback at CocoCrew.org. And if you wanted to reach us uh, individually, I'm available as John at CocoCrew.org, and Neil is, of course, available as Neil, that's N-E-I-L, at CocoCrew.org. On the subject of feedback, uh, several of you do send us email from time to time. Uh, I also would like to 
plant the seed that would be happy for you to send us an audio feedback with your own recorded audio, your own message. And, uh, you know, as long as it's uh, reasonably appropriate, uh, I think we'd probably be happy to put something on the air. So uh, you can send us a message tell us how great we are and uh, what's going on what you think is exciting in the cocoa uh, community i think that'd be a nice addition to the podcast what about you neil that'd be great to get that in the mix jason timmons if you're listening to this vcf midwest uh, please send your audio clip <laughs> well there you go calling them out <laughs> so uh those are all our standard announcements uh this time i wanted to add a few uh just announcements for the month um there's a new podcast that i think some of you might be interested in uh it's called vectrix radio and so it is of course a a podcast uh with the theme of the uh, or themed around the vectrix um gaming system uh the vectrix as i mentioned earlier is of course based on the 6809 processor which is the same as the processor and the coco and so uh, it's uh, unique in its own way because it uses the, the vector uh, monitor. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you're uh, someone who pro- programs for the Coco or someone who programs for the Vectrix, I'm sure you could swap to the other platform and find yourself at home in many ways. So uh, maybe we should try to cross-pollinate those uh, communities. Uh, that'd be a cool thing, don't you think? With a 6809, that's good enough for me. <laughs> so that'd be really cool. There's another new source of um, video entertainment, I guess, on YouTube. Uh, it's a, a source of game reviews and, and some other content. Uh, this is uh, the original gamer, Stevie Stroh. This, uh, Stevie is kind of, I, I don't know how long he's been doing his game reviews. Uh, he kind of popped up on the radar this month doing uh, because he's added a, a uh, Cocoa uh, game review playlist and it is up to well some of them still aren't quite available yet they're kind of pre-posted I guess but uh, we're talking on the order of 75 videos <laughs> with game reviews for wow Dino Wars and Demolition Derby Demon Attack Color Baseball Cave Hunter um, that's 75 reviews of just yeah. Cocoa Bean? Coco games, yeah, they're all wow. Coco games, and I mean he has he has other games as well. But uh, anyways, the link link in the show notes to the page he has set up, where he uh, not only has a link to his uh, YouTube series for the Coco game reviews, he also has a a number of other links he's collected. Um, that uh, especially if you're new to the Coco community, you might find some of them useful. Many of them are the same kind of links that we normally carry, but there's a few others that. Uh, you might not otherwise have heard about. So uh, go ahead and check out the original gamer, Stevie Stroh. Uh, Stevie, uh, I, I know you've mentioned in some of your comments that, uh, well, A, that you're listening to our podcast, and, and B, that uh, you're thinking about coming to Coco Fest. So I'm calling you out. <laughs> if you get, if you got time to post 75 Coco game reviews, uh, you need you are a nut and need to uh, find a way to get to Lombard, Illinois, uh, in April of 2016. <laughs> I, I definitely think so. I mean, if he's done that many Coco game reviews, uh, yeah, he should be there. Uh, so, on a more somber note, uh, not strictly a Coco uh, announcement, but for those of us who grew up. Uh, uh, doing uh, some BBSing in the uh, late 80s and early 90s. Uh, many of us would have used uh, Z modem for file transfers. 
And so in this, in the past month, we have learned the death of Chuck Forsberg, who is the creator of Z modem. Um, don't really have a lot to say there other than I've put a link in the show notes that, that will take you to Chuck's memorial information. Like I said, it's a, one of the, uh, founders, uh, of our technological present and, uh, might be of interest to some of the listeners that, uh, Chuck has passed. Z modem was the best. Z modem was really awesome. It was, it was, it was incredible. Clearly, uh, I, I, I can't remember any situation where it wasn't the best performing protocol for that type of transfer for, you know, serial point to point transfer. There may have been some, but there weren't many. Um, it was cool. And plus it, it had the, the signature, uh, identification so that rather than having to start the transfer, uh, at the remote end and then started on your local end, uh, you could just start it at the opposite end and, and it would recognize that initial signature and start their download automatically. I'm not sure why the other protocols couldn't do that, but, um, I remember installing Z modem on my BBS when I ran one and what a difference it made from the other ones. <laughs> it was, it was very efficient compared to the, to X and Y modem. And so, very very cool. Anyways, well, so Chuck, we're sorry to see you go, but thanks for uh, thanks for the memories, buddy. Okay, another announcement, uh, more Coco centric. Um, many of you will remember Roger Taylor. Uh, Roger, well, let's just say Roger no longer participates in the Coco mailing list. He does show up on Facebook some, and and possibly in some of the other forums. Roger has been working on. A, an FPGA-based Cocoa implementation. I think he's targeting a Cocoa 2 at this point, would, would possibly an eye towards going beyond that in the future. Anyway, he's uh, basing it on a DE0 FPGA development board, and he's got a, some sort of daughter card that he, to plug it into to implement the Cocoa stuff. Uh, he's been posting some videos of, of his machine playing different games. He even posted one showing up playing this obscure Cocoa game called Farfall. Anyway, uh, Roger has started a GoFundMe uh, project, or I guess is what you call them, a GoFundMe. Anyway, he's got a GoFundMe uh, to help with his prototyping and, and development of his FPGA-based Cocoa alternative. So if that's the sort of thing that interests you, we have a link in the show notes. Uh, you may want to go and check it out and go fund me. That's called Coco on a Chip. <laughs> I think when you saw Farfall running on it, it got your attention. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, he seemed to be playing a, a, a Farfall Alpha 3 or something. It's like, well, the betas are two years old now. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. uh, so I think he probably needs to check the Farfall website there and download a a later version but alas whatever uh so one more announcement this one also coco specific and this ties back into coco fest so at coco fest we uh, tend to along with our show floor we tend to have uh, a few um seminars where people stand up and they talk about uh well various things uh, some of them are vendors like cloud nine will usually have a a presentation on whatever project or whatever new products they have that year um, I tend to do uh, some presentations on what projects I've worked on. Uh, I asked for a couple of seminars uh, this round, uh, a couple of slots, one to do something with a, about this podcast, and then one maybe for my own personal projects. Anyway, the point is Brian Goers, who is uh, the coordinator for those um, seminar slots, has uh, sent out a call 
a little early this year. Uh, he's calling for people who are interested in doing the seminar at Cocoa Fest. And I guess uh, the Cocoa or the uh, the organizers of Cocoa Fest this year, they want to put together, uh, it's the 25th anniversary. And so they would kind of want to do up a little nicer than usual. They're going to do a show guide. Uh, so a printed guide that'll cover vendors and the events and what seminars and stuff are available. Uh, deadline March 15th. So if you're interested in, um, well, if you're interested in being covered in the guide, I think it might even cover attendees. Uh, certainly if you're interested in hosting a, or having a, uh, a seminar session, then, uh, you need to reach out to Brian, uh, as soon as possible and let him know. 25th anniversary. That's another reason to get people out. If you've never been to Cocoa Fest before, uh, you know, you can say you've been to the 25th anniversary fest. Yeah, Silver Cocoa Fest. How about that, huh? Great. Who who would have thought that we'd uh, we'd uh, still be doing Cocoa Fest uh, all these years later? How many years have you come to Cocoa Fest, Neil? Since 2010. I think I started coming in 2001. I think I might have skipped one year in in between. So, uh, you know, so it'd be what 15 for me then this year. Wow, that's great. <laughs> wow, that's a long time. Anyway, it's a great event. Uh, anybody who has an interest in cocoa uh, should come out. It's uh, it's great to meet other crazy people, the <laughs> same kind of crazy as you are. It's a great opportunity to buy new stuff to, to trick out your cocoa. It can be a great opportunity to find hard, rare to find historical peripherals or 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 even cocoa specific models or that sort of stuff it's a great place to find you know old magazines or books um you know it's uh, you get to meet all the people uh it's a great thing and like i said i don't know anybody who shows up for cocoa fest that that doesn't like it i don't think i've ever talked to anybody who was in that situation and i try to talk to all the newcomers every year um probably don't manage to do so but i try to talk to them (laughs) and uh definitely most people if anything their reaction is why didn't i come sooner (laughs) it's true you hear that from a lot of people and uh i even brought a couple friends of mine a few years ago and uh, they they don't even have a cocoa and uh, (laughs) they still had a good time Yeah. yeah so it's a good event uh, if we haven't made it clear, we'd love to see all of you guys, everyone listening. We'd love to see you show up at Cocoa Fest. Anyway, well, that probably is enough for our announcement segment this uh, this time around. We'll be back in a bit with the news. Well, good afternoon. My name is Tony Pedraza, and I am the host of the annual Last Chicago Cocoa Fest. We call it the last in quotes because we really don't know if we're going to have another one. And we haven't known every year for the past 17 years. Okay. And now we're back with some news. <laughs> uh, okay. Our first item is uh, this is going to be a dragon item. Uh, so our folks, uh, our dragon cousins um, over on World of Dragon, archive.worldofdragon.org. Uh, they have the ROM from the Orchestra 90 pack, which of course is a uh, stereo 8-bit DAC uh, cartridge that plugs into the Cocoa and has some software in it, excuse me, to uh, to assist with uh, uh, a uh, synthesizing music. Uh, the Dragon folks have taken that ROM and patched it up so that it runs correctly on the Dragon. I'm not sure if they had to modify the keyboard routines, so maybe they did. Uh, probably more importantly, they had to um, change the output so that instead of writing to the 
Orchestra 90s DAX. It just combines the, uh, they didn't write it out to the, the single DAC on the Dragon 64, which I, I think is the same as the, what's on the Coco. So that ROM uh, image that they're using on the Dragon might work on the Coco as well uh, without the Orchestra 90. Anyway, it's a um, pretty long thread, uh, a couple of pages at least on their forums over there. Pretty neat read, some cool hacking. Uh, if that sort of thing interests you, then you may want to go and check it out. Uh, next item comes from uh, Mark McDougall. Mark points out to us that the main guys or mess guys uh, have corrected uh, some problems with their emulation of uh, a card called the, the Stellation, the Mill uh, 6809 card for the Apple II. And so this card, uh, if it wasn't clear, is a, is a card that plugs into the Apple II but has a 6809 processor on it. And uh, similar to how the many people are familiar with the, the CPM cards that plugged into the Apple II that had a Z80 on them, uh, this is sort of the same idea, but with a 6809. Along with A just being the 6809, something that makes that interesting is that at least some versions of the card were actually able to then also boot up OS 9 running on essentially an Apple II machine. I think the way it works is uh, this, the 6502 would run some code that that basically allowed it to handle basic I/O uh, for the keyboard and such to to be able to run your shell over on uh, the 6809 card running the OS 9 shell and running OS 9 programs over there. I think it also had packages where it could do some other stuff. I think it had uh, a Apple Pascal software uh, package that would uh, take advantage of the 6809 and maybe some other stuff. Uh, I guess they had the problem with emulating this card uh, sort of programming error error or or maybe. I know um, there are two versions of the card or it's really one card with a, a different piece of configuration hardware on it or whatever i've actually got one but it's the version that doesn't actually run os9 uh, so ba- basically the the memory map that the 6809 sees with the version of the card i have is incompatible with the way os9 expects to see memory and so later they came out with a, a especially another like a PAL or GAL chip that you could re- swap it out or maybe it's a little daughter card or something like that that would change the addressing on the card and actually made the the address map for the 6809 look like the address map that the Z80 uses when it's booting CPM. <laughs> um, but anyway, so maybe um, maybe what they had emulated in, in MESS um, was doing it the way the card I have was doing it, and now they have it where it can also do the other version of the card that can boot OS 9. One way or another, the emulation now is working in MESS. You can boot up uh, an emulated 6809 processor plugged into an emulated Apple II, all running OS 9 under that emulation. And I think it's just stock OS 9. No reason that somebody couldn't make it run Nitrous 9. So that'd be a cool project if you're so inclined. What do you think about that, Neil? Yeah, say it's just a matter of days now. You see nitrous running on there. <laughs> That'd be cool, wouldn't it? I think it'd be great to see uh, even uh, Coco application or video game running on that. Yeah, so so like I said, I have one of those cards, and I have contemplated before I actually put, started porting um, Farfall to the sixty five hundred two on the Apple II. I had contemplated seeing if I could get Farfall ported to the sixty eight hundred nine on that card plugged into an Apple II. 
But, uh, you know, it's one of those, like we discussed earlier, I just don't have quite enough time for all the projects. <laughs> Moving on, uh, we have a couple of news items from Philippe Antoniosi, uh, who is the mastermind behind the RGB to VGA device that uh, allows you to take the RGB signals uh, from the Coco 3 or from some other similar older machines and, and display them on a modern VGA monitor. And so the first item that he reported on is that he has been messing around with the code, and now he's got it where instead of outputting it, I guess it was outputting at a 640 by 480 resolution, uh, he now has it working output at an 800 by 600 resolution on the VGA. That's irrespective of what resolution you're feeding into it on the RGB side. He can output at 800 by 600 on the VGA side. And at 800 by 600, it'll look crisper because it's closer to the native resolution. It probably do, will look crisper. Certainly, it'll allow for uh, you know more accurate uh, in any of the conversions for the the resolution. I would think. Anyway, so if you uh, have an RGB to VGA, or if you're thinking about getting one, um, there uh, is some news that ought to interest you. Uh, along the same lines, the same device, uh, Fleep uh, has actually been messing around, uh, and now you can use that device RGB to VGA to uh, output um or to, to take the the output from the timex sinclair 2068 <laughs> machine and also display that on vga and it's a little bit of an inside joke with the uh, the only reason i'm in, uh, mentioning that well partly because it is the rgb to vga it's kind of grown up uh, out of the coco community so that's interesting but also because um Bob Swoger, who's uh, one of the Glenside people behind the uh, Coco Fest, uh, <laughs> he has a history that uh, is sort of a outside the Coco. Uh, his actual favorite machine is the the Timex Sinclair 2068. So Bob's a great guy, and I uh, get a kick out of him. So I couldn't help but mention <laughs> mention this item here. So, Bob, uh, if you haven't already got your RGB to VGA for hooking up your Cocoa, now you need to get one for hooking up your Timex. (laughs) Yeah, that was the first time I've ever seen that Timex version, too, was uh, a few years back when he brought it to the fest. Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting machine. It's probably not appropriate for this podcast, but... Uh, if you're interested at all in the Sinclair line of machines and and the Timex Sinclair collaboration, and then how it ultimately kind of got weird and <laughs> did some funny things at the end, uh, do yourself a favor and go uh, look up the history of the Timex Sinclair 2068. <laughs> yeah, or or you can talk to Bob at the fest. Oh yeah, I'm sure you can talk to Bob at the fest. That'd be a cool thing. All right, moving on. Uh, next news item which concerns the Coco 3 FPGA. So I mentioned how uh, the Coco 3 FPGA project actually had a source release uh, not too long ago. And uh, the great thing about releasing the source to something is that sometimes people will pick up the source and, and uh, do something neat with it that you didn't have the time or interest or capacity to do. <laughs> and so... Uh, in this case, uh, and I don't know who this person is, but uh, it's Leslie, uh, uh, or also known as uh, Red Skull DC, uh, over on the uh, Coco 3 FPGA Yahoo group. He's taken the version 3.0.0.1 <laughs> Coco 3 FPGA source and has ported it. Uh, so that normally targets the Altera DE1 uh, FPGA development board, and he's now targeted it to the Altera DE2. FPGA development board. So it's a little bit more modern board. 
and maybe it's something that you know even if uh you may just only have one board you may already have a de2 and don't want to buy a de1 and so in that case either way uh you can get a de2 and now I'll experiment with the coco 3 fpga uh so good job on that mr red skull dc <laughs> hopefully he's not going to uh to bring hydra down uh <laughs> and we'll have to have shield defend us against uh leslie i guess um uh, Sorry, it's uh, throwing out some Marvel jokes. Uh, <laughs> anyway, moving on. Um, so, Mr. Ed Snyder has, uh, over the past, uh, well, few months or a year or two, he's been doing a lot of cool projects for the Coco, uh, mo- many of which have involved uh, hardware to to output composite NTSC video from the Coco 2s. And he has boards that support both the Korean and the American versions of the Coco 2. And so he's, you know, making those machines, uh, extending their useful lifespan a bit and uh, uh, improving video quality along the way. Well, so now he's gone off and sort of done the same trick, but for the um, the MC10. The MC10, of course, is the, the micro color computer, uh, which is a small machine. Um, uh, speculations that it was intended to, to compete with the Timex Sinclair 1000 or also known as the Sinclair um, ZX81. I'll say that for our Canadian and British listeners. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, that machine is uh, uses the same video chip as the Coco 2, the 6847. Uh, does not have the SAM, so it's a slightly less flexible on all the video modes that it supports, but it's essentially the same video. It has a different processor. It's a 6803, which is a Motorola processor, not completely unlike the 6809, but not completely the same either. Oh, yeah, and of course, it runs a version of Color Basic, so it's very similar to the Color Basic available on the Coco. But uh, so it's a sort of a little cousin to the Coco. Many of us have one just maybe out of curiosity or thought they were cool when they were when they came out years ago. But uh, so if you've got one, you may now want to think about converting it over to composite video. Uh, he's doing basically the same thing he's done with the Coco boards where he he has a uh, the jack that he puts on it actually kind of looks like a, a stereo headphone style of jack on the one end, and then the other end has the RCA cables, uh, similar to what um, many of the portable DVD players uh, had. And the nice thing for that, you don't have to modify the case. That's right. You don't need to to, to change the case to, to be able to install it and then have all the outputs that you need. So You know, I think this is uh, going to give me the push to buy an MC-10. I keep, uh, I'm on the fence about buying one, but I think this is going to bring me over. Yeah, they're cool little machines. Um, you know, they're, the keyboards are even worse than the <laughs> than the Coco ones as far as comfort. Uh, but they're, they're kind of cool machines. Certainly the 6800 is, an, is a noteworthy, or 6803, is, which is a derivative of the 6800, is certainly a noteworthy processor for if you want to, exercise your programming skills uh, of course you can program it in basic in fact i think uh, jim Geary, who uh, i think we've mentioned uh does a lot of uh games for the cocos uh, i think his main target actually is the mc10 and because the basics are so similar he writes the games in basic for the mc10 and then he does a conversion over to the cocos he has a lot of games written for the mc10 cool stuff he even has a a, a a tribute game to Farfall in there, I think. <laughs> so pretty cool. Yeah, but uh, so anyway, good job, Ed. 
glad you're still plugging along. It's a cool project. Uh, I was teasing Ed that uh, now all the MC10 needs is uh, an SD card interface. And <laughs> uh, uh, what else did I try to poke him into? Uh, maybe Bluetooth? <laughs> I'm not sure. Anyway, next item. Uh, this is from Mark J. Blair. Uh, this is the same person who uh, a few years back released a uh, PCB design for a Cocoa ROM pack uh, replacement PCB for, for making your own ROM packs. And so uh, now he's sort of completing the set. He's done some 3D modeling for the plastic cases that would go around the, those, those PCBs. Um, he's done a, he's basically cloned the, the Tandy's uh, packs. So it's a three uh, it's a three-part design, so it includes the top and the bottom and, and the, the sliding door. And then in his directions, I think he even tells you how to make a spring out of piano wire or, <laughs> or whatever. Um, and so he has, uh, I think he did some prints uh, through Shapeways uh, to, to test them out. And there was someone else uh, that uh, was using a, a 3D extruded plastic uh, 3D printer uh, that they had at home to do their version of the uh, of the prints. So they look like uh, it looks like a functional model. You know, if, uh, if something you're looking for, I think if you go through Shapeways, the price is a bit high. Um, but if you need one, maybe it's a great thing to do. Um, I still say that's ambitious to go with the door. Yeah, I, I think it's. Um, you know, it's, well, I mean, like I said, basically going with what Tandy had. Um, when I cast my own, the ones for the, for the car, for, for the far fall cartridges I did, replicating the door seemed like a painful step to me. So I actually modified my design a bit so that the molds uh, made parts that, that don't have a door. They just sort of, the PCB sticks out the bottom like it's sticking its tongue out at you, which uh, I think is kind of an interesting looking design anyway, but... Uh, and it's probably easier to clean the. Uh, the <laughs> it's probably easier to clean the, uh, the the PCB traces if they do get dirty. Uh, but the downside being that they might be more likely to get dirty. <laughs> anyway, well, with the game Farfall, I mean, it really should never come out of the multi pack. Well, you just stick it in there and it never comes out, right? <laughs> That's the way it works at Neil's house. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot more I'd like to say on this topic, but uh, kind of I'm going to have to wait for a later podcast to make any new announcements there. But uh, the next item uh, is from Matthew Bouchard. Is Matthew is he uh, is he in Quebec or is he in France? I was thinking he's in Quebec. I say Quebec. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. pretty sure. Anyway, so Matthew's posted. Uh, well, his title is a. Uh, which I don't, I don't know how to spell in with a French accent, but it's CGP 115, uh, manuel en français. Uh, <laughs> basically, he's got a scan of the... <laughs> you're laughing at my French pronunciation, I guess. But he's got a scan of the CGP 115 manual in French available as a PDF. Uh, yeah, Matthew Bouchard, here's his email signature, says Montreal. So if you have a CGP 115 and you are Quebecois or other French speaker... You want the manual uh, in your native tongue? Uh, Matthew has what you need. Uh, that link is in the show notes. The next item comes from Stephen H. Fisher. Uh, Stephen posted we're looking for, I guess he has a schematic uh, for a manual to take from the Coco 3's RGB port to a Sony uh, monitor. Uh, it's a Sony KV1311CR. 
I'd never heard of this monitor. Apparently, a lot of other people had. I guess it's a cool monitor. I personally don't know a lot about it. The link's in the show notes to threads on the mailing list. Somebody helped them out and got the design drawn up. Uh, if you have that monitor, the Sony KV1311CR, you probably want to check it out. Next item comes from um, Pear Surratt. Uh, I think we mentioned Pear on an earlier podcast. He's a dragon fellow. And so his link is debugging a real dragon with no ice serial port. If you're not familiar with the no ice project, uh, I know it's it's been around a while. And I think it, let's see, I think it may target more than just the 6809. Yeah, he targets a number of, of uh, mostly older process, processors. Um, but it's a, essentially it's a, a piece of code that runs on a, on a, like an embedded system is probably what it's entitled for, but it could be, a, you know, a, a an 80s uh, home computer or, or whatever. Anyway, it runs on one system, and then you run a program on your local system, and you can step through code and, and debug programs on it. The, uh, the fellow that's behind the no-ice debugger, I guess he has a soft uh, spot in his heart for the 6809. And so basically if you're working on a 6809 project and you send him a note, he'll give you a license uh, for for his software, I think free of charge, as long as you tell him you know, what your project is. <laughs> so that's cool. Uh, and so Pear has done some work to uh, to make this work on the Dragon. I'm not sure if it would directly transfer over to uh, the Coco or not, but it probably wouldn't take a lot of work to port it over if you know what you're doing. So if that's the kind of project that appeals to you, again, you should go and check that out. How about you, Neil? You doing any uh, remote debugging on uh, on your Dragon? No, I still got to get the Dragon hooked up. <laughs> anyway, our next news item comes from Barry Nelson. And uh, so Barry's put together what he calls the ultimate VCC hard disk image He's using ImmuDisk. So ImmuDisk is, is basically a, a standard for basically fake hardware running on a Cocoa emulator that looks like a hard drive controller. And I think it originated with the Jeff Vavasour emulators, but uh, it's supported in VCC and also in MESS. I actually have a, in my Cocoa 3 um, video player, digital video player project, I actually have a version that will support uh, an EMU-disc-based uh, uh, video uh, <laughs> uh, playback from that. Um, anyway, he's got a, a, a disc image that uh, has... Um, a lot of Cocoa software kind of prepackaged. And so if you are an emulator user and you're looking for a, a kind of pre-made repository of Cocoa software, you may want to check out uh, Barry's ultimate VCC hard disk image. And also to note, Barry's working on a, the same version of that for the Cocoa SDC. So that should be cool. Uh, that'll reach out to a, uh, a slightly different audience, but uh, should be a, a handy service for them as well. All right, the next item comes from Boise Pete. Uh, in our last episode, we kind of we sort of poking a little fun at Boise because uh, he has sort of uh, pre-announced a, a project uh, for uh, basically replacement badges uh, for the Coco 3. So as you may, well, you probably know, may or may not totally realize, uh, the Coco 3s all have badges that say uh, 128K Coco 3. Uh, even if you bought it with 512K already installed, they also had the 128K badge. Um, and so, uh, 
this has been a point of contention over the years, I guess. So people thought, well, I, I should have a badge that represents what's really in my cocoa. And at some point, Boise and Mike Rowan got together and uh, commissioned a replacement badge that they did a real good job matching the font and everything. So it, it looks like it could have rolled right off of Tandy's uh, assembly line uh and so you can have your coco 3 say it's a 512k coco 3 it really does look amazing too like it even has the gloss the same font and everything you can't tell the difference yep it looked good i saw where joe grubb was posting on uh, facebook that uh, that he had gotten his installed uh so they are they are shipping and uh you can order them from boise or mike i guess you go through boise and he'll distribute some orders to mike as appropriate so you order from boise you might get the shipment from mike or boise either way your stuff will show up <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, if that's uh, if having a badge that says 512K on your Cocoa 3 appeals to you, well, then contact Boise. Link's uh, in the show notes. Next item uh, comes from Al Hartman, and Al lets us know that over on the Vintage Computer Forum, there's a fellow he's calling himself six, Sis64738, which I think is has the look of some sort of Commodore uh, uh, <laughs> basic call or something. Uh, he says he was a Commodore enthusiast, uh, t- tipping his toe into the Cocoa world. I guess he was trying to play uh, Sockmaster's DK Remix, and um, but he didn't have a joystick. And so this guy uh, put together a, so- a, a circuit based on the... Uh, the schematic out at Cocopedia, which is one I think I mentioned earlier in the in the intro, we made a little circuit board. It's kind of cool. It it, um, it fits inside of the the housing of the D sub connector that plugs into the Atari side of the joystick, and then it has a um, the circuits all embedded right in there. And then he has a short cable to the Coco style uh, con- joystick connector, and um, it's a, a cool little project. And so if you want to be able to use uh, Atari joysticks on your Coco, uh, I don't know if you still got them available for sale or not. I did pick one up off of eBay. Um, so it's well-made. It's a cool project. I don't, like I said, I'm not sure if they're still for sale, but there's a link in the show notes to the, to the thread and you can learn more about it. You know, if you're interested in buying one, send the guy a note, see what he has. All right. Next item is uh, a note from uh, Tim Lindner, who's uh, a member of the Coco community in good standing for a long time. Uh, Tim, uh, is, uh, he pops up from time to time in a number of retro computing uh, uh, forums uh, and uh, associated with mess and, and some other stuff. Anyway, Tim uh, has, I guess it's sort of like a blog, or, or it's not exactly a blog just because it's more of a collection of, of of articles, uh, kind of running a, a website of Tim's own design. Anyway, let's call it a blog. <laughs> and Tim just posted a, a post recently on uh, modifying super extended color basic. And so I guess Tim had a reason to have a um, slightly different set of commands in color basic for, um, I guess he wanted to access uh, 16 bit. Uh, peaks and pokes and uh, slightly differently than what was otherwise available so he just tells you what kind of patches he made and and how he was able to use the extended basic anyway if you're interested in programming in general or or the internals of how basic works on the coco you may want to take a look at tim's article 
Also, to note, the other stuff on his website is pretty interesting, too. Uh, he does have a nice write-up uh, on the copy protection on uh, some DICOM games for the color computer as well. I found that was kind of neat. Yeah, Tim has a lot of cool articles over there. He also has a great write-up on how the uh, DICOM light, light gun adapter works. And, uh, That's amazing. So, some other pretty neat stuff. So, Tim's an interesting guy. And, uh, like I said, he's been around a long time as part of the community. Um and, uh, you know, he's got some cool stuff, and it's great that he's writing some of it up and sharing with the rest of us. All right. Anyway, the next item comes from Bill LaJudas. Uh, Bill is one of the uh, writing teams, uh, him and Boise, behind the, the Coco, the colorful history of Tandy's underdog computer. So Bill does a lot of writing for uh, retro games and technology sort of things. And so he's got an article that he's posted uh, a look back at the weird, terrible keyboards of 70s and 80s PCs. <laughs> and so guess which one is the first item pictured? <laughs> so Bill has uh, put up a Coco One with a chiclet keyboard. I'm not sure if it's fair to say that's the very worst. Uh, I think there's probably some even even worse keyboards out there. Anyway, you know, I think there's very few people who really want to defend the uh, the original chiclet keyboard on the Coco. I'll say, at least for this, at least it's hard, the keys are hard plastic and not rubber like on the zx spectrum um so at least we've got that for us and they're not flat little bubble whatever you call the membranes uh like what was on the atari 400 so there <laughs> take that <laughs> anyway bill we love you we'll forgive you this one uh and we know you've got to uh <laughs> cover a number of angles uh in in the re- retro computing world so uh we'll let you slide on on this uh this little take uh, this little shot taken at the coco one <laughs> Uh, the uh, next item is from Josh Harper. Uh, Josh has uh, been in the community a little while. He pops up once in a while. He uh, he's uh, he has lists of uh, things he's looking for that he'll post to the list once in a while. He also got uh, he got a little dust up not too long ago where. Uh, uh, another list member kind of had mistaken him for a spammer or something. I don't know. Kinda, I think we all felt sorry for Josh at that point. Anyway, uh, Josh has been uh, involved in a uh, pr- attempt to recreate the Mylar inserts that are part of the, the circuitry inside of the Coco keyboards. Uh, a lot of keyboards of that vintage uh, in retro computers have this plastic layer inside with a conductive traces on it that actually form the switches uh, for the keys inside of the keyboard. And because of the, the nature of the, the construction there, the, the the conductive traces sometimes will come off of the, the flexible plastic uh, underneath and make the keyboards no longer work. So a number of the uh, retro computing environments have... Uh, come up with ways, uh, well, basically sources for replacements of those Mylar. So you just take them out, take out the old Mylar, put in a new Mylar, and the keyboard works again brand new. So Josh is uh, looking into that. He uh, is posting some updates. Most of them are, are not super detailed, but basically just letting us know that they, he's still working with He's got some kind of local company that uh, is working with him on, on reproducing the Mylar's. And so he posted an update to that effect. Uh, let's see, when was this? Um, November 18th, so last uh, last week or so. 
So, Josh, uh, glad to hear that you're still pursuing this, and I look forward to seeing the Mylars uh, hopefully before too long. Yeah, I was just going to say that's definitely a good thing because, uh, you know, finding replacement keyboards is going to get harder and harder these days. Yeah, well, they're not making any more of them, that's for sure. Apparently, uh, talking to Boise, you did say that, you know, that is an issue. I, I've luckily never run across a keyboard that has that problem, but apparently it is, uh, it's definitely an issue. Yeah, well, I've got a few keyboards that that have uh, random failures that I haven't bothered to track down because they have a certain job that uh, the keys work well enough to do whatever it is they're supposed to do. <laughs> so, so you know, so I, like I have a little travel pack for for when I want to show Farfall or, or whatever else on the road for like a a maker fair or a, a retro computing event or something. And so the Kogo two in there, as long as it runs far fall, it doesn't really matter if, if all the keys work correctly. And I think maybe it's got, <laughs> it may have a problem uh, on the keyboard and it might have a couple other machines that are in similar situations, but, um, but I'm not sure if those are mylars or if there's something else wrong because the, the PIAs uh, inside can, can fail in odd ways and sometimes they don't work. You can have broken circuit boards or broken other boards or whatever. Anyway, I, I'm sure the mylars can wear out and I'm sure there are people who would love to have replacements. Hopefully those will come. Okay, next news items is from uh, Steve McCoy. Steve has been working on getting a complete set of scans of the uh, Hot Cocoa magazines uh, up at uh, Color Computer Archive. And so this month he posted that he had finally gotten April of 84, which I guess was the last one he was looking for. And uh, and so, so, yeah, so Hot Cocoa is available. Uh, it's a cool magazine from back in the day for covering the color computer. And so if you haven't checked out Hot Cocoa previously, then you should go to Color Computer Archive and, and take a look. It's a lot of good content. Okay, the next couple items come from Simon Jonason. Simon, of course, has been uh, doing some weird, wild stuff to the <laughs> to the, the uh, video display generator on the Coco 2 and Dragon for some time, uh, working towards uh, doing some demo-style code for Coco. And so he's posted uh, a couple of interesting things recently that I still, I'm not sure I have my head around exactly how they're working, but I know he's, <laughs> he's got them going. The first one is in semi-graphics mode. He's got uh, a technique that lets him produce uh, essentially a half uh, pixel shift uh, in, the, in semi-graphics mode. So, you know, the data should just show a, a series of blocks stacked on top of each other. And instead he can shift them alternate lines or whatever he can shift them ha over half uh, half a pixel or half a half a character i guess is what he says uh so they kind of look like they have fringe on them is basically the effect uh it's an interesting effect i'm not exactly sure what it would be useful for but you know that's for the demo coder to figure out <laughs> um, but it's a neat effect and uh it's coco doing something that's not documented on how to do so it's great that simon's been poking around and and figuring out stuff like that uh one other thing simon's been doing he's got another one here he says 28 plus colors on the coco 2 slash dragon probably should say on the pal coco 2 slash dragon so so basically simon has figured out something about the um, pal video encoding that Basically, you can get line get a a, a multi line effect somehow, and again, I, I'm not sure I really totally understand how these are working just yet. But uh, he's actually producing, you know, uh, on the emulator, it looks like you've just got kind of a candy stripe, two different lines. 
but then you show the pictures show on a real uh, television, granted they're tube television, so I don't know if there's a, a CRT effect involved or not, but one way or another, it, it mixes out and, and it looks like a smooth color instead of the alternate lines. Like I said, he's getting up like 28-ish colors. That's a lot of colors to get out of the Coco 1 or 2. It looks amazing. Uh, those pictures he posted, I, it's definitely uh, really cool to see that. Yeah, so that's pretty neat, and you can. It's not anywhere. It's not difficult to see how you can use more colors, right? That's a, a neat idea. I think it's and, safe to say that Simon is the Coco demo scene guy. <laughs> well, as of now, I'd say he's probably the only one doing that sort of thing. Anyway, so Simon's done some cool stuff. He's got some new graphics capabilities out there. If you want to see more, then then contact Simon. He uh, he's both on Facebook, and he also hangs out over at the World of Dragon dot org. But let him know uh, what you think of his graphics uh, and uh, encourage him to keep going and, and produce us some cool demos. Okay, uh, the next item comes from uh, Chad Hendon. I think uh, we mentioned Chad's one of part of his project in an earlier uh, episode, although I think at that point I didn't know his last name, so he was just Chad H. there. Anyway, so Chad, is uh, he's working on a, a multi- ROM pack, uh, Coco 512K EEPROM with a plus external controller. Uh, so he's got a, essentially a bank switched ROM pack and he's got provisions for having an external, like a, an AVR or a pick or something like that, uh, to, um, with a, an LCD display to, to, uh, <laughs> to take your selection of which ROM pack to load next. And, uh, and then plus he's also got, uh, along with that hardware, he's got some software. He's written some loaders and stuff. So in your ROM pack, you might not actually have a ROM image. You might have a image of a piece of disk-based software, but with a loader that, that lets it load out a ROM. He's doing some cool stuff. Anyway, he's put together a video showing how he's using his new hardware and software combination to be able to load the code on the Coco. I took a look at it. It's pretty cool. Uh, the link here is in the show notes. So if that sounds at all interesting to you, you definitely should uh, avail yourself of the opportunity to watch uh, Chad's YouTube video. Cool thing about this project is you can take a disk image and convert it into something that can load off ROM. So it's not only good for archiving, but it makes the program run a lot faster. Yeah, so it's a neat idea. And like I said, it's a, it's both software and hardware. He's done some write-ups or whatever. There's information out there. If you're interested in the technical aspects of Chad's project, he's documented a lot of it. And if there's something missing, I'm sure he'd really know. But I imagine that he'd uh, be happy to hear from you, ask questions, and, and he'd probably be happy to fill you in. Moving on, uh, the next project, uh, the next piece of news comes from Nick Marentis. And so Nick... Uh, is teamed up this time. Uh, last time he was team, teaming up with Sockmaster. Now he's teaming up with Robert Galt. And uh, these guys have put their heads together and observed that in Super Extended Color Basic, um, there are four H screen modes. There's a 320 by 192 in four or 16 colors and a 640 by 192 in two or four colors. Um, but they observed, that, of course, the, the Gimme uh, uh, chip is capable of producing 200 or 225 lines of resolution. But for whatever reason, the basic H-screen H values there are restricted to 192 lines. And so they wanted to be able to use basic to do the drawing uh, of, uh, you know, whatever they want to draw, um, but still have access to the higher resolution modes. 
And so they've gone through and done a little poking around and uh, described what you need to do, what kind of patches you need to poke into the RAM-based version of Super Extended Color Basic uh, to enable you to use these um, higher vertical resolution versions of those modes. It's not too bad. I mean, it's um, looks like six lines with three or four pokes per line. So it's 20 pokes, give or take, uh, <laughs> to, uh, to activate these extended modes so you get more lines to use or whatever. And then to prove the point, uh, Nick has also gone on and, and written a sprite editor in BASIC using these new modes. And the, editor, the sprite editor itself looks like a rather useful little piece of software for drawing a, a sprite, you know, a moving graphic for like a game or something. And he's got uh, not only the graphics editing portion there, but he also has ways that you can kind of designate groups of sprites as as an animation sequence, and then you can see what it looks like when it's animated. Uh, so that's pretty cool. And he's got a, a really great write-up there on his um, project archive website. Like I said, a lot of cool stuff there. Have you checked it out, Neil? I did, actually. I checked it out today uh, briefly. I loaded that sprite editor, and it's... Uh... It's pretty easy to use. I, I might actually do a couple uh, game graphics in it, or at least try. Maybe you could do some game graphics of some Christmas-oriented sprites, and we could <laughs> work together on some of that. Uh, so that should be cool. Next item is from Steve Betson, and he is announcing that California Digital, if you're not familiar with California Digital, this is a company that at some point back in the day uh, acquired a, uh, a large amount of Tano Dragons, and the Tano Dragon was essentially the, the Dragon 64 made for the U.S. market, so it has NTSC video. It was uh, for a while sold by this company called Tano, which uh, I think they were down in, uh, I think they were in New Orleans. I'm pretty sure it was Louisiana one way or another. I think it was New Orleans. Anyway, I'm not sure really what happened to Tano. I think they may have actually been fundamentally more of a an oil company, so they may have actually acquired the computers maybe for their own use in their oil business. Uh, I don't know. But California Digital, I guess at some point, I don't know the history there, but one way or, other, or another, they ended up with this stockpile of Tano Dragon machines, and they've been available for sale, new in the box, for years. And several of us have picked them up over time, and... They still seem to have these machines. It's like um, a time capsule over there. It is. You can smell the air fresh from the 80s. <laughs> we opened the box. Anyway, uh, Steve is letting us know that the California digital people are pre-announcing a price increase. So right now, I guess you can get them for $49 each. And as of January 1st, uh, 2016, they're going to be available at $59 each. I'd say it's still a pretty reasonable deal if you're looking for that kind of machine. I don't know. That was, of course, followed up by some discussions on the mailing list of whether or not uh, California digital folks are particularly easy to work with. <laughs> it sounds like it's maybe um, sort of a one-man shop and maybe not the most professional customer service or whatever considering the nature of what's for sale i think probably that's not a huge surprise i could see how it would fool somebody though the name california digital sounds like a big corporation it kind of does um i don't know i think i don't know what their their website has these days they used to have a pretty big stock of various types of vintage gear and i, I got the impression in the past like say 15 years ago uh that they were making money selling 
vintage gear to to people who had to keep old systems alive and whether or not there's anybody who had to keep an old set of tano dragons alive anywhere i don't know that'd be an interesting story perhaps that business may have died off now or been replaced by some old hermit somewhere with a collection of uh pinium machines <laughs> running, running dos 6 you know who knows <laughs> uh so if you want to get a tano dragon from california digital and you want to keep the current price of 50 bucks, you may want to go ahead and send in your check by the end of the year. Along those same lines, I've thrown in one here that I thought was newsworthy. Uh, an eBay auction for a, uh, you know, again, a new old stock Tano Dragon 64, which as just sort of went over, a new old stock Tano Dragon is not exactly hard to come by. But, uh, anyway, as an eBay auction for a new old stock Tano Dragon 64, sold for $173.50. So somebody apparently didn't know you could still buy these brand new for $50, and uh, they got, uh, uh, got a little too excited on eBay and paid a bit more than what I think they should have paid. So, caveat emptor, uh, let the buyer beware. Uh, if you were looking at buying a Tano Dragon, there's probably better ways to get them than on eBay, and certainly better ways to get them than paying $175 on eBay. Well, okay, so one more news item. This one is just, I've watched this auction. Oh, <laughs> it's been ended. Well, never mind. <laughs> someone bought it? Uh, someone bought it. Wow. Uh, that's cool. Well, so... I had this auction uh, for uh, 24, quote, TRS-80 Atari vintage computer games. Basically, there's 24 program packs, Some, most of them in boxes, a few loose, and it included this uh, hard-sided piece of luggage that looks like it came from the 60s that had all these stuffed inside. Uh, I had originally spotted it when they were asking $300 for it, and then they had, uh, to their credit, they at least had dropped the price a bit and had gone down first to 250 and then to 230 and uh but I, as of yesterday it had still been relisted at 230 looks like somebody bought it so uh, <laughs> i was basically posting it just to say please somebody buy this uh, just so i can quit seeing it um so whoever heard my uh, unspoken prayer thank you for buying that <laughs> you know what i think sold it was that luggage it might be it's kind of <laughs> interesting to have that piece of luggage i don't know i mean it's not a bad package there's some some nice titles in there i mean there's a downland there's a panic button a spider side androne there's an atom uh, a mind roll there's even a math bingo i mean that's pretty hard to come by right there but uh, i mean dragon fire demon attack you know there's some pretty good titles in there uh I thought maybe it was a little bit much to ask. Maybe it finally got down low enough to wasn't as quite so ridiculous. In fact, I think I, I said that yesterday that well, at ten bucks a piece, maybe it's starting to become a reasonable price. But when it was at like three hundred bucks or something, I thought, well, that was a little much. Anyway, somebody bought it, so <laughs> I'll uh, I guess I'll still leave that in the uh, in the show notes since we mentioned it, but. Uh, <laughs> anyway well that's my last item of news so uh i guess now we'll just have to move on some people have big plans after school you know what elliot's gonna do jeff too elliot's at work on a book report using scripts it on radio shack's color computer 3 it hooks up to his tv and jeff's at his radio shack color computer 3 playing the newest football game but wait what's elliot doing playing new super pitfall and jeff's having a blast with a new math tutor 
You never know what you might try with more than 100 programs for fun and learning. Radio Shack's Color Computer 3 comes with everything you see here. Other items each sold separately. Only at Radio Okay, let's have some listener feedback. First one is from John Strong, and it's in reference to, I mentioned in an earlier podcast that there was a way to get Cocoa 2s as a kit, where you just get a box full of parts in the case, uh, disassembled or whatever. You'd have to solder the parts on the bare motherboards, uh, all that sort of thing. And uh, so we've, we've seen a few of those show up on eBay over the years, but it's pretty rare. Uh, anyway, I mentioned that uh, it's... Uh, earlier episode and john wrote to us uh, says i seem to recall the coco kits were not sold separately but as part of a mail order training course and so that, that kind of rings true i could see where if there was a an electronics course available through either through radio shack or or some subsidiary or, or you know their training facilities or whatever that that might have been the the connection where you, you probably couldn't just walk into the normal Radio Shack and buy a Coco 2 kit. But if it was a training course, I could see where that would might make sense. Wouldn't, wouldn't you think so, Neil? Definitely. I mean, it would be a good learning experience. And uh, I know this might be sacrilege, but I have to admit, if I uh, ever came across that, I'd, I'd have to build it. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, I don't know if I could uh, keep looking at all those parts just looking at me. And uh, I don't know. I just think it'd be a fun project. I know there's a lot of Coco 2s out there, but uh, the thrill of building it. Yeah, it definitely would be cool. Anyway, if you happen to have one of these in your garage, uh, feel free to contact me. <laughs> I would be happy to to help you find the uh, the proper disposition of that. <laughs> anyway, uh, moving on. The uh, next piece of feedback comes from Mike Rowan. He's a friend of the show, obviously. He uh, sounds like he's vacationing with Neil these days. <laughs> um, anyway, so Mike says uh, the show notes are great. So he's referring to. Um, Starting with the previous uh, episode, I think uh, switched the show notes to an HTML-based format, so it reads up like a web page. And then I actually created a a little custom website for the show, a little more than just what it comes out stock from uh, from Cyber Years. So anyway, so that's what he's referring to is my HTML-based show notes. He says the show notes are great. I also enjoyed hearing everyone on Floppy Days episodes. And so if you're not aware, Floppy Days is another podcast, a retro computing podcast. It has a broad coverage of a variety of, of retro computing platforms. And he sort of walks through uh, chronologically based on when computers were introduced. And so that's what Randy Kidnig is the host. And uh, Randy's also kind of part of the Coco community. We see him on the mailing list from time to time. Uh, and Randy, I, I, th I think he's planning to uh, be at Coco Fest this year. So uh, at least he ought to be. I mean, he doesn't live that far away. So Randy, I'm calling you out. I expect to see you at Coco Fest this year. Randy had some Coco episodes recently. He had, it's actually basically a three-part thing. The first part was a Floppy Days episode 44 where he had an interview with Boise Pete, uh, which was sort of uh, kind of a historical view on the Coco. Um, and then uh, he found he had another interview, a different thing on episode 45, but 46 and 47, uh, Neil and I joined Randy as co-hosts of Floppy Days for those episodes. And we had kind of a, a wide-ranging review of, of Cocoa topics from uh, some of it more technical, some of it more kind of collecting. So anyway, if you haven't, if you aren't tired of hearing of, uh, from Neil and I, and if you're interested in listening to another podcast, 
uh, I would recommend you go and listen to Floppy Days, uh, particularly episodes 44, uh, 46, and 47. Do you have fun doing those episodes with uh, Randy, Neil? I did, and that's a lot of Coco content, three episodes. Yeah, it was only supposed to be two, and Neil and I talked so much <laughs> that, <laughs> that he had to edit our one episode out to two more uh insta instead so uh so randy's a cool guy he's also involved in the antic podcast for the atari uh boo atari uh, <laughs> eight bit uh computers there's that name that came up again atari sorry yeah <laughs> boo atari uh anyway no actually i kind of like the atari but uh boo atari just kind of rolls off the tongue i guess <laughs> Anyway, moving on. So we mentioned uh, the dragon fellow uh, goes by the name of Rolo, who's uh, Roland Schweiger. Uh, he's a, a German fellow, and he produces a, a multi-ROM image cartridge uh, so that you can... It's basically a multi-ROM pack, and so you can enjoy uh, a number of ROM-based games on your Coco or your Dragon. Uh, it sounds like he's targeting mostly the Dragon. Uh, he sent me a message that said that... Um, uh, there aren't that many Dragon-specific ROMs, and so actually a lot of his ROM images on his cartridge are actually Coco ROMs that he's had to hack a bit to work on on the Dragon. Part of his message, he, uh, he asked, uh, is there anybody out there doing still some real productivity stuff, i.e. writing letters or controlling anything, maybe home automation? So I just would have to pass that question along to uh, you, the listeners. If you're doing anything cool with your Coco, especially anything practical or real, you know, running your weather station or running your home security uh, system or, I don't know, running reports for your local book club, uh, whatever. I'd love to hear about that. And it sounds like Rolla would too. How about you, Neil? Yeah, same here. I find these those stories fascinating when you run into somebody and you find out they're still using a you know, an old retro computer for their business or. Yeah. Well, you know, I recently discussed something that sort of falls into that. I mean, so the Coco had the X10 controller. And, uh, you know, X10 is still sort of a thing. It's maybe not the coolest way to control lights and stuff in your house these days, but it, it still works. You were talking about maybe uh, doing something with X10 recently. What, what was that? I was. I was thinking of doing a uh, controlling my Christmas lights with it. Yeah. The outdoor lights, the indoor lights, even the Christmas tree. <laughs> so that's cool. Yeah, I used to uh, have the X10 controller hooked up to uh, just as sort of as f- for fun. I hooked it up to a... a uh, a bedside lamp in, in our bedroom and uh, I had it on a timer and, you know, you can set it on a timer and it'll remember, uh, I think you can set it on a timer and it'll keep the time even without the Coco connected. And so I set it to, uh, to come on in the evenings, uh, you know, five or six or whatever time it was getting dark. And then uh, I, you know, I kind of like to, to go to bed and I don't know, between 10 and 11. And so I had it go off at, I don't remember, maybe 1030. And my wife has always wanted been a, one to stay up a little bit later and so uh, she would i'd go to bed and the light would go off and, and half the time she'd kind of be caught still in the bathroom getting ready for bed and so it got to be a bit of a silly game where uh, she'd sort of race into bed at the last minute see if she could beat the uh <laughs> beat the uh the light going out uh so that was fun those uh younger younger days i guess but <laughs> Anyway, it's not exactly what Rolo was asking about, but it's an amusing anecdote, I think. Uh, so moving on, uh, another dragon fellow, uh, Pear Surratt. I think 
pair uh trying to i'm trying to roll the r i'm not very good at it i think but uh pair said he's from barcelona and that pair is a is a catalan name for what it's worth uh so i've been to barcelona i know something about uh, the catalonians and that there's a sort of a bit of an independence movement there to where catalonia would like to be independent from the rest of spain of course i, I have some other spanish friends who are would be very tempted to let catalonia find out what it's like to be <laughs> independent from the rest of spain so uh they might have to be careful that, that they get what they wish for <laughs> at some point uh, hopefully i haven't angered pair with that <laughs> but uh so pair says um uh and so i think he's referring pair's actually involved with that story we had earlier about running the um the orchestra 90 rom image on the dragon and he says i'm afraid that this is a normal story a dragon user that discovers something really cool for the cocoa, and then something has to be programmed to use it in the dragon. So, you know, if the cocoa sometimes maybe feels a little bit unloved, certainly doesn't get the same amount of attention as uh, the Apple II or even the Atari get. But, uh, you know, the dragon, I think, is probably is if we're in the shadow of the Apple II, the dragon's actually in the shadow of the Coco. So <laughs> so uh, if you are doing a project and want to do something cool, uh, try to keep our dragon brethren in mind and, and see if you can support them with your project. And at least maybe they don't have to hack the new stuff as much as they have to hack all the old stuff. I think that'd be cool. Give your dragon a little love. Do give your dragon a little love. In fact, I mean, as we know, you can get a new in the box dragon uh, from California Digital. Price is about to go up, um, but you can still get them. So if you're a serious Coco user, I'm not sure you can be serious as a Coco user, but <laughs> if you're a serious Coco user, you should have a dragon these days too, and uh, make sure that all your projects work on work on both the dragon and the Coco. I, th- I think that'd be a good policy, don't you, Neil? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, that probably beats our feedback to death, but we would like to continue to hear from you. So please send us uh, emails, uh, uh, your feedback on our uh, shows, suggestions for new topics. I would really love to get some audio feedback. Record something, send it to us. Tell us uh, what you think about the Coco, what you think about our shows. Tell us about a project you're working on. Uh, We'd love to hear any of it. And uh, we'll probably, uh, we'll try to use whatever we can uh, in the show itself, as long as you're you know, not saying something crazy or vulgar. I'm always looking for cool uh, audio clips to put in the mix. Cool. All right. Well, that probably covers our feedback. This episode of the Coco Crew Podcast is brought to you by the numbers 6, 8, 0, and 9, and the letter E. All right, welcome back. Past couple of episodes, we've uh, added to our format to a, a discussion, uh, freeform discussions between uh, Neil and I. The uh, reception seems to have been positive to that, uh, so we thought it would be good to kind of continue that. In the spirit of Thanksgiving, though, uh, I think we're going to avoid anything too controversial this time. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Uh, we'll go on a lighter note. Yeah, on a lighter note. Well, so... Neil's job as the Canadian representative is to be uh, the polite one in the group. And so um, (laughs) we're letting Neil uh, uh, suggest the topic this time. And so Neil's suggestion, um, uh, well, his original suggestion was uh, how many Cocos do you have? And I kind of steered that into what what is in your cocoa collection or or maybe it's even just what's in your collection in general so that's our topic so uh i'm gonna let neil start with the discussion of uh you know 
what's Neil, what is in your collection? Well, definitely a lot of Cocos, but one thing I have a fetish for is collecting monitors and disk drives for the Coco. And uh, the only drawback with collecting those things, they, they do take a lot of room, but I just can't say no to a CRT monitor or old floppy drive. <laughs> I had, yeah. had the need to save it. Yeah, well, I can understand that to some degree. I mean, especially for different computers, uh, sometimes even though the com- the monitors can be compatible, uh, they're compatible in a way that you got to find the right connector and, and rewire them yourselves <laughs> and uh, right. maybe invert some signals. That can be difficult. So I, uh, I've got a, a collection of monitors. You know, I've got a... I've got a, a monitor for an old Mac. I've got a, a monitor for the Apple II GS, which I'm pretty sure is different from the Mac. And then uh, I've got uh, uh, got the monitor. Well, it was for an MM1, actually. But also, it's a pretty decent, uh, uh, just 50 hertz or a 60 hertz, uh, 15 kilohertz uh, monitor for a variety of RGB uses. Uh, even that's very handy. You know, so uh, so you like floppy drives? You have. Um, uh, will you have the different types of controllers, too, or do you just have one? Pretty much the whole, uh, all the Radio Shack ones, like the FD500, 501, 502, uh, a couple of disto packs, J&Ms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have the switchable J&Ms where you can... I, I just recently uh, got one, actually. Yeah. Switch the ROM, are... so I'm going to burn a different ROM so I can put uh, two different DOSs in it. Yeah, you have JDOS? Yeah, JDOS, and uh, I'll probably put ADOS <laughs> on the other bank. <laughs> that used to confuse me, man. It's A DOS, J DOS, C DOS, RS DOS. What is all this DOS? <laughs> um, and, and, and as for the floppy right. drives, as for the floppy drives themselves, I just uh, I'm up to about fifteen units now. Ooh, they all half height or any of them full height? Or? Half, half height, some full height, uh, mostly half height ones with the dual drives in them. Some I've, I put in different drives like TX and them and Panasonic's. Do you, ever, do you have any of those um, deck uh, double, whether they're double full height drive chassis? You've seen them at Cocoa Fest a few times. Do you, do you have one of those? No, I don't, uh, but I know what you. I know what you mean. Yeah, so I've got one. I remember it, it was really nice. It's real quiet and and seemed pretty reliable up until the point where it stopped working. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I, I just uh, I, I'm not sure why when it stopped working, I just kind of threw it back on the pile. So I'll figure this out later, and then I've never gone back to it. But I think since then, I think I learned that the the drives inside actually used uh, belts. To drive them rather than a lot of floppy drives right. they have a direct drive motor or whatever that's right um so these old ones i think that these had a belt and so i, I i'm guessing that the belt broke and that's why it doesn't work anymore yeah and that's very common a lot of the uh, even the full height drives they're all belt driven and it's it's tough finding a replacement belt form at least uh, i haven't had good luck with it yeah, yeah, I think um, uh, there's probably some magic you have to understand the terminology or whatever exactly how to measure them or something. But it seems like it wouldn't be that hard, you know. It's just uh, a belt loop around something. Is it tight enough? That sort of thing. But it can be a problem. Do you have a Tomcat or an MM1? Uh, I do not have a Tomcat. I would love to have one. I only know of about three or four of them that people have. I'm not sure how many were ever even made. I do have... Uh, I actually have two MM1s. Wow. Um, but one of them, I think, was not fully populated. It was sort of like a starter model or something. Um, and then the other one, 
um, uh, I'd gotten from uh, someone in the community, and then uh, it had gotten jostled around or whatever. So the MM1 is just sort of just a, a little cage of cards or whatever. It's not really a cage. It's just sort of a backplane with some cards on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they kind of had jostled loose or whatever and i didn't know much about how they were supposed to be and so i kind of put them back together best as i thought they could be and i think i got it wrong and kind of let the magic smoke out of something Uh, so i have one that i think is damaged but i haven't sorted that one out i don't know it's uh uh the mn1's an interesting little artifact from the past and it's like well i'd hate to 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 let it totally disappear and be destroyed but i also can't give it a lot of priority because i never had one (laughs) back in the day you know what i mean right yes you don't have the attachment to it as as much as uh yeah i'm not really attached to it if there is anybody who's uh, interested in a smoking mm1 um feel free to contact me i'm sure we could arrange something Uh, so you're talking about the, you can't say no to a monitor or floppy drives, and and I can sympathize with that. Although I, I think I'm past that on the floppy drives, and might be past that on the monitors these days. What I had trouble saying no to was the uh, the deluxe RS232 packs, <laughs> and I guess because I I used to do a lot of modem style communications, and I also like to use a serial port for debugging and and communicating to the to uh, to coco's sort of remotely so i like to always make sure i have those packs available if i want to hook up to the coco and then also um i used to buy basically every orchestra 90 pack i could find but i finally got enough of those that i thought i was okay <laughs> and then i i bought i probably still buy the the sound speech packs whenever they're kind of at a low price if whatever low seems like at the time but uh i probably have enough of those as well so maybe i'll stop doing that but <laughs> uh those are favorites for me and i'm not sure why you know as you think you just buy one and be done but i probably have th- at least three or four of each of those those three packs it's interesting too you know me and mike rowan were talking about this and you know how certain people get hung up on a certain item and you, you buy more than you, know, you really need, but you just have that, that addiction, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely uh, can understand that. Well, if there's some aspect of the cocoa that you really like, you want to make sure you never have to live without it. And especially if it's, if you're not either, if you're not technically inclined enough to replace or repair something, or if you are technically inclined enough to realize that it's made of a collection of unobtainable replacement parts. <laughs> so if, if it ever breaks, you'll never be able to fix it. That's kind of how my, I am with the Vectrix. <laughs> Those, uh, until recently, I thought the tubes were basically unobtainable, although that turned out to not be quite true, at least not for now. Um, but, uh, but yeah, sometimes, uh, can be hard to refine replacement parts for things. So uh, what else? So how about uh, some of the more esoteric things? Do you have um, the real talker or the the, the ears, uh, which is, uh, I guess, you could respond to, you could actually recognize speech? Uh, do you have either of those? I don't have the ears, but I do have one real talker. 
Yeah. The ears is always, that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. I think, I think I have one somewhere in the pile, but I've never really used it. Uh, I was always kind of skeptical of any kind of voice activation stuff. I still am, even with cell phones to some degree. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I'm sure I picked it up as part of a deal somewhere. That's how I ended up with it. I, I doubt if I'd have negotiated for that individually. So what else? So how about the video digitizer uh, for the Coco? Do you have any of those? Yeah, I have a DS69. Uh, I just recently yeah. acquired that, uh, playing around with that. It's kind of neat. And I'm also lucky enough, I was trying to collect a lot of the uh, Daikon products, partly because it's uh, they were Canadian-made, so it kind of got a little uh, attachment for me there. Uh, and I was able to get the original light phaser adapter with the original game yeah. and uh, the rat mouse. Oh, you got the mouse. Which was also uh, a Daikon product. Oh, that's cool. I know you'd been uh, looking for that. Yeah, the the light phaser adapter is pretty cool. It sure is a shame how that technology is tied so strongly to to CRT monitors. Because um, even I mean, so so the way the that one works, it you can see why it needs to be uh, tied to a CRT monitor because it actually it kind of records the timing of when the signal hits the uh, the phaser to determine you know where on the screen you're pointing. But even uh, even on the Nintendo games, which use a slightly different technique where when you press the trigger, they black the screen and then they draw a white box around each target to see if, if you hit. So theoretically, that technique should still work even on, you know, that doesn't really depend on a raster scan for the technique. But it turns out that it still, it expects that response quickly enough that um, modern televisions because they do processing on the video they don't show they end up not showing the white block for the targets <laughs> um, uh. fast enough for the for a Nintendo game just to recognize the hit and so even though that technique should have been f- sort of future proof it still wasn't In certain ways the uh, CRTs were ahead of their time. So, well, the CRT actually provides faster performance on video output. Kind of strange. Um, if you ever hear somebody say, well, there are still video applications that require CRT, well, that's partly why, because they actually control the timing of when the video shows up more easily on the CRT. Kind of weird, huh? <laughs> yeah, that is. The other thing I like about retro computing is uh, you don't have to worry about updates. <laughs> the line of work I do, the updates just drive you crazy. Yeah. <laughs> the other day I was doing a Windows 7 machine and uh, three hours later just to do a one set of updates. So anybody telling you it takes a long time to load a game off a floppy disk, well, you know what? <laughs> Wait until you download it over the Internet, right? That's right. Oh, man. Well, here's one. Here's a, kind of along the same lines, really. Uh, here's something I'll bet you don't have. Okay. Uh, the This is uh, 2002 uh, by Nick Marentis and John Kowalski, a.k.a. Sockmaster. Uh, this is the DigiWiper. Oh, Are you familiar with that one? I've seen it on his webpage. So it's a cool little project. He uh, basically uh, uses an LM1881, which is a, a sync separator, um, and to uh, to sync up with a video signal that's passing through. Uh, so, like you'd have a video source passing through to a VCR, passing through this little block and this little box that's plugged into the Coco, and uh, then it's got software that lets you do uh, wipes. Uh, so like if you're doing a, uh, editing on a VCR or whatever, and you want to transition from one scene to another, you can do a wipe, you know, left to right or top to bottom or, 
corner to corner and that sort of thing or jail bars even um that's cool yeah it's a cool little piece of technology i mean it's sort of been bypassed by the fact that nobody is using analog video <laughs> anymore so it's kind of in the same category uh as say the the video toaster on the amiga which is a cool piece of technology that now is practically useless right. certainly obsolete but uh, it's a cool little piece of technology if you are using those composite video sources uh, you can throw in uh, these these wipes uh, or fades or whatever and i'm sure there's not too many of them out there i i seem I was, to i was just gonna say there's there's probably made a handful of them i don't think there's uh, they sold a lot yeah I, I was under the impression they didn't sell very many uh maybe on the order of a dozen i'm not sure yeah. but anyway I've got one. Uh, it's a pretty cool little piece of tech. I've considered trying to sell it uh, just to see how much it would go for, but I don't know. I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah, I was just saying that's a, that's a neat piece to own. How about, uh, so what else have you got that might be interesting? A white uh, Coca One. Yeah, you got a white one? Yeah, I've got a, I've got a white one down uh, in a box somewhere. The white Coca One was neat. All of them came with 64K of RAM and extended yeah, color. Yeah, I think they were all, you know, uh, I think that was in the era of the deluxe cocoa, which got canceled, but then they still kind of had a market for a, a tricked out cocoa and sort of a, a higher end cocoa before the cocoa 2. I always found that fascinating that the, the Coco 1, the white one, came with 64K extended color basic, and then yet the color computer 2 came out and get it with just regular basic and 16K. Yep. Well, I wonder also, did the, I, I guess since it's a Coco 1, it probably has the 12 volts on the uh, cartridge port. It does. I tested it with an old disc controller. Yeah, so I wonder if that's just sort of to fulfill the, the Cocoa Power user market uh, as the Cocoa 2 was coming out. Yeah, that would make sense. Anyway, that's kind of cool. Do you have a TDP-100? No, no, I, I wish I did. I uh, I saw one at VCF uh, Midwest this year, but the uh, price was too high. And it was pretty beat up. Yeah, I've got one uh, that um, got a few mods on it, which on the one hand I like because they're convenient and <laughs> it's kind of cool. On the, on the other hand, I kind of wish it was more pristine, you know, but it's kind of cool. Yeah, some mods could be really good. Okay, well, let, let me trump you with one more thing there. Uh, how about a video text terminal? Do you have one of those? No, I don't have one of those. <laughs> Pretty useless, I guess, but it's kind of cool to see that heritage, that Coco heritage. Obviously, it's the same case as the Coco one. It even has the kind of a knockout where the, uh, the cartridge port should be. If you're opening up a Coco Museum, that's definitely a good piece to have. That's, that's <laughs> part of the family. It definitely is. It's sort of a, the uh, the pre-Coco world. Uh, I think it would be cool. I should at some point try to crack that open and see if I can uh, put a ROM uh, socket on there somewhere and, and, and uh, run some code on that. That would be kind of cool. See if there's a solder pads for the, uh, the cartridge port. <laughs> oh, that might be neat. You can solder one on. It'd be funny if they had the same motherboard, but I'm sure it doesn't because it has the, the modem on board, right? But anyway. If you really want to be a completist, you got to get Project Green Thumb. That would be awesome. Good luck finding one of those. I'm not even really <laughs> sure what they look like. <laughs> but... Uh, no, the um, the closest I ever came to that, I, I remember, and it was years ago. You'd think you'd, I'd have seen another one by now, but it was, it basically looked like a blue Coco 2, or I'm sorry, a blue Coco 1, and it was an AgVision terminal. And so hmm. I think it was basically the same 
I think it's basically the same thing as the video tags terminal. Okay. And, and so it was like a step in between. It was after green thumb um, and about the same time, or maybe slightly before the video text terminal, there was this thing called ag vision. There probably, I mean, you know, if there's five green thumbs still out in the world somewhere, there's probably a hundred ag vision still out in the world somewhere. And even those numbers are probably optimistic, but just, <laughs> just scale wise, you know what I mean? There's probably right. a lot more ag visions available than green thumbs. It's probably right. one green thumb and 20 ag visions or, <laughs> or something. And I don't know. I'm totally making these numbers up. But, you know, I saw a, a quote from George Washington that said that 95% of statistics on the Internet are all made up. Anyway, you know, I know something I've got software that you'd like to have. <laughs> <laughs> I've got my my original Gantlet disc I got uh, from uh, from Mr. Glenn VDB. And, uh, and that is a Dicon product. Yes, it is. <laughs> Practically comes with a Canadian flag. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, well there oh, there is that uh, oh, that uh, ROM pack too, right? The the burner, no, not the ROM burner. Yeah, uh, you were. <laughs> You ended up with the ROM burner from Glenn, and uh, and then it magically appeared at your house. Yeah, you somehow decided I needed it, uh, <laughs> so that's the Intronics EEPROM burner, and uh, it's a cool little piece of tech. I like it because it's the software is just built into the ROM that plugs in with it. Didn't you find a manual for that? Yeah, I was going to say I was uh, after you sent that to me. I was looking through an old collection of of documentation manuals and 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 magazines and stuff like that i was kind of sorting through that i had acquired over the years and i found a bound copy of the manual uh, for the intronics uh, eprom burner so it was it was like fate (laughs) it was meant to be so pretty cool stuff there everybody should have a uh, a cocoa buddy that sends them stuff once in a while (laughs) That's a nice little surprise in the mail. Yeah, it was cool. Along with my uh, contraband chocolate and (laughs) (laughs) my Mars bar. (laughs) For those outside the U.S., you may not realize that the Mars bar is uh, something that we don't have in the U.S. And so Neil was kind enough to send me one because I've uh, acquired a taste for them uh, uh, in my travels abroad. Although, to be honest, they're not that different from a Milky Way. But (laughs) Anyway, well, that's probably, uh, we're starting to ramble now, I guess, so maybe we should wrap this up. But anyway, a friendlier uh, or less controversial host discussion uh, segment this time, but I hope it's still enjoyable for everyone. Moving on. And at that note, we'll leave you with this. It's not hoarding. If you have everything organized and you know where it is. <laughs> Which, is, of course, means that I'm hoarding. <laughs> okay, but why Tandy Computers? In a word, quality. We do it all from custom-designed semiconductors to the finished product. Tandy Business Computers are manufactured in our own USA plants. We test and retest and test again to ensure one of the highest standards of quality in the industry. And Radio Shack provides total service and support. I'm convinced. Tandy Computers. At Radio Shack Computer Centers. In business, for business. Okay, welcome back. This is the sixth part of our Cocoa Architecture series. 
on uh, the earlier parts we focused on mostly on the individual uh, chips that made up the Coco 1 and 2 architecture and we talked about the cartridge port um, pretty much covered the Coco 1 and 2 so now we're gonna have to talk about the Coco 3 and the Coco 3 of course is mostly compatible with the Coco uh, 1 and 2 so it, it sort of starts with that uh, base architecture and then it builds upon it uh, mostly with a uh, an ASIC an application specific integrated circuit made for the Coco 3 on uh, known as the GIME uh, G-I-M-E which stands for Graphics Interrupt Memory Enhancement, or Enhanced, or Enhancer, I'm not sure I know what exactly the ending on that last word, but uh, Gimme, uh, so it's Graphics Interrupt Memory and Enhancement, or something like that. The um, Most of the differences, uh, we're going to talk mostly about the Gimme, because most of what makes a Coco 3 different from a Coco 1 or 2 is in the Gimme chip. There are a few other physical differences, so I'll just go ahead and cite them. Uh, the keyboard on the Coco 3 is uh, has a few extra keys. Um, uh, has um, well, it has the arrow keys relocated, and it has a couple of function keys and whatever. But it's basically it's a similar keyboard, but there's a couple of extra keys on there. Um, on the bottom of the Coco 3, there's a uh, a little ten pin header that uh, is for an RGB monitor port specifically for the CM8 although it can be interfaced to other similar monitors there is on the back uh, in addition to the RF uh, video output there's also a composite video output port and uh, of course a, a matching uh, RCA audio uh, connector it's a little you can't really see the difference from the outside but uh, there is a sixth pin on the joystick connector that on the Coco 1 and 2 is ostensibly unused, although it looks like some of them may actually have tied it to ground. Um, but on the Coco 3, that uh, that sixth pin on the joystick is used to uh, enable a, a second joystick button. Um, but, uh, you know, so that that's cool for... Uh, a little extra action uh, control in uh, a number of games. That's pretty much it from the outside. It's otherwise looks pretty similar to a Coco 2. Uh, I guess the keyboard bezel is gray rather than black. It's kind of a a little bit of a difference. Um, like I said, a few extra keys. Otherwise it's a little bit hard to tell the Coco 3 from the Coco 2. Uh, of course the, uh, the badge on top says uh, Color Computer 3, 128K, uh, unless, of course, you buy one of the new badges from Boise, but <laughs> that's a uh, separate story. All right, we'll talk some now about the history. Um, when it was time to start considering the Color Computer 3, of course, people were realizing that the, the Color Computer and Color Computer 2 was getting a little bit, uh, as they say, long in the tooth. Um, the other competing machines... Uh, were uh, more powerful graphically and 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 often more powerful in audio as well. Um, the CPUs for the traditional competitor machines weren't really getting any uh, better, although you're starting to see the 16-bit uh, CPUs become more prevalent, the 68,000, uh, uh, that sort of thing. But I think the biggest weak point, had, as always, had been on the Coco, had been uh, graphics. So. I think that was the focal point. 
for uh, looking at enhancements. Uh, Motorola at the time had a chip called uh, well, a chipset actually called the RMS, uh, which I think is Raster Management System. I think it's two chips. Um, anyway, the the uh, the specs. I don't really have a complete set of specs, but I know it could display a 64 out of 4,096 colors and had higher resolutions and such. Kind of put it on par with say the Amiga. Uh, in terms of raw specs, uh, I'm not sure about the, you know how it would have played out in terms of you know number of sprites you could draw and that sort of thing. But anyway, it was a, a, a big enhancement and it was off the shelf, which would have been kind of a typical uh, Tandy way to go. Um, unfortunately, uh, the story is well, the, the story is detailed in. Uh, uh, Bill and Boise's book, uh, Coco, The Colorful History of Tandy's Underdog Computer. The story is, dedic is uh, kind of detailed there, so if you really want the historical play-by-play, uh, uh, -play, then, then look at there. But basically, I guess it came down to, there are a few complaints listed in there. Some of them seem a little questionable to me. One about that somehow the way the chip managed memory um, wasn't really compatible with OS 9, although it, it didn't look terribly different to me than how any other chip would manage memory. Um, there was a complaint about it being slow, which seems maybe a little more plausible. It says that 0.89 megahertz was the max, although it probably is on the Cocoa. It's, it's probably more like 1 megahertz would be the max um, in general, uh, since it was a generic chipset. Um, it could be, I don't know, it's not unreasonable to think that there were speed limitations, but I think the biggest problem was that it was, it was expensive and this cited as $20 for a chipset, which doesn't sound all that impressive, but if you're involved in any kind of manufacturing, especially electronics or whatever, you'll know that that uh, the bill of materials cost uh, kind of factors into uh, an equation or whatever that, that the manufacturers will use and they'll put a big multiplier on it and say well for every dollar we add to the cost it costs us a hundred dollars in support or something like that <laughs> i don't know what the real numbers are but twenty dollars for a for a computer is going to sell for two hundred nineteen dollars uh twenty dollars a cost for a single item probably was a pretty big uh, concern so there's a tandy engineer named john prickett who uh uh, you know, there's more information about John in, in, in uh, Bill and Boise's book if you want to learn more about Mr. Prickett and his career. Um, but anyway, um, John Prickett uh, decided that uh, offered to do uh, an ASIC design in-house and that he could do it for a lot cheaper. And, um, you know, the long story short, I guess it, when they did produce the, uh, the Gimme chip, the uh, production cost is cited as $7.00. So that's a a, uh, a lot cheaper. That's about almost a third, or a little more than a third. But um, you know, it, it's a, a pretty good uh, delivery of bang for the buck, I would say. Um, it may or may not have. Uh, obviously, it didn't meet the the color specs, and I don't know about the other specs of the RMS, but still a pretty good chip for uh, a much more reasonable price. The Coco 3 was unveiled on the 30th of July 1986 at the uh, New York Waldorf Astoria Hotel. 
glittery event, I'm sure. Uh, side note is apparently the infamous Mr. Bill Gates was in attendance. Um, Microsoft wasn't quite as quite the behemoth then as it is now, and uh, certainly as the provider of the basic in the uh, machine, I guess uh, Mr. Gates thought it was worthwhile for him to come and uh, attend the event. Uh, a couple of months, a couple of months later, in October, there was a Rainbow Fest uh, in uh, in New Jersey, uh, and there was a roundtable discussion held there uh, about the Coco Three, and uh, it included uh, um, Barry Thompson, who was the uh, Tandy internal buyer for the Coco Three. So, kind of like a, so I think that's sort of what you might call a, a PM in a lot of companies these days, a, a product manager. Um, and then there's Mark Siegel, uh, who was, well, of course, he was maybe more of a product manager. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> Mark Siegel was definitely involved in the the, uh, the management side of the project, and the uh, infamous Mr. Steve Bjork was there as a representing the developers for the Coco Three, and there may have been a few other people on stage. I don't know. Uh, the audio of that event actually is available, or at least some of the audio of it. Uh, and uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to, uh, for those that are interested in hearing uh, what people were talking about there. And uh, it's kind of funny, some of the, uh, a few jokes in there that are a little, maybe not risque, but maybe a little sexist or whatever by modern standards. <laughs> um, so it's definitely a period piece. Uh, one other note that I noticed that that's sort of a historical interest uh, is about the name, the, the GIMI or Graphics Interface Memory Enhancement. Um, that name is, uh, well, it's mentioned uh, in, uh, I think they used that in that uh, uh, roundtable discussion, and it's in the uh, Rainbow Magazine uh, articles about the unveiling of the Coco 3. But if you read in the Technical Reference Manual and some of the other literature, uh, related to the Coco 3. Uh, it refers to the uh, ACVC, or the Advanced Color Video Chip. Um, going by some of the information in that roundtable discussion, it sounded like um, maybe there was a, a work conflict with the technical writers involved with the Coco 3, uh, and that um, maybe that some of the technical documentation didn't get produced until later. So I don't know if there was an official name change from Gimme to ACVC uh, internal to Tandy or if somehow it just didn't get communicated correctly uh, to the writers. Um, but you will see that uh, in some of the technical documentation it'll reference what is clearly the Gimme chip and they'll refer to it as the ACVC. So if you're ever poking around <laughs> say in the technical reference manual uh, uh, or service manual for the Coco 3 you'll see that anyway so usage of the chip obviously it was used in the Tandy Coco 3 and not surprisingly it wasn't really used in in much else although somewhat surprisingly uh, it, it was actually used um, in the Frank Hogg uh, Frank Hogg Labs TC9 or Tomcat and this was one of the um, machines that came along later at, at the end of the Coco's uh, commercial life that was sort of billed as a Coco 4. And my understanding is uh, Frank Hogg actually bought up a, a stock of Gimme chips and was uh, popping them in his own design. I don't know a lot about that, but it's kind of an interesting footnote. <laughs> 
after these messages. We'll be right back. All right, well, now with most of the historical bits taken care of, we can look at some of the features of the Gimme Chip and the Cocoa 3 in general. The main point, of course, uh, is compatibility. The Cocoa 3 is supposed to be compatible with the Cocoa 1 and 2. Uh, if you listen to the roundtable recording that I mentioned earlier, they will emphasize again and again how compatible it is and how everything's going to work as long as you follow the rules or whatever. I suspect the rules were a bit fluid. <laughs> but anyway, so for the most part, the Cocoa 3 is compatible with the Cocoa 1 and 2. The biggest outlier to that is the support for the semi-graphics modes. The Cocoa 3 really only supports one semi-graphic mode from the uh, 6847, that's uh, SG4. That's the one that divides every character into four blocks. Uh, on the Cocoa 1 and 2, uh, well just straight out of the 6847, of course there was an SG6 mode that was a little bit broken on the Cocoa because of the way they had reused some of the data lines to uh, uh, in the text modes for indicating upper and lower case, that sort of thing. Uh, limits the amount of colors available in SG6 mode, so I guess I decided it just wasn't going to be used at all uh, for the Cocoa 3. It's a shame, I think, that they left out the SG8, 12, and 24 because those are very useful modes and can produce some pretty nice graphics overall. Of course, the Cocoa 3 has no use for those. It can actually produce a lot nicer graphics, but it'd be nice if your Cocoa 2 games uh, that written in the semi-graphic modes, say, Farfall, <laughs> would continue to work on the Cocoa 3, but alas, that's not what they did. Uh, there's some evidence uh, that perhaps they did try to support them, uh, and uh, for whatever reason just couldn't get them working, or decided to stop before they got them working. Uh, there are some pokes uh, you can do. Uh, I'm not going to document them here, but there are some pokes that will allow you to turn on most of the semi-graphics mode functionality uh, on the Cocoa 3. Uh, unfortunately, it, it still is a little broken when it comes to showing text mode. Anyway, uh, so the Cocoa 3 is mostly compatible with the Cocoa 1 and 2. I guess that's your takeaway item. Uh, and that also includes some of the extended features available from the, the later uh, VDG, the 6847 T1. So things like uh, being able to have a black background in the graphics modes or true lowercase, um, those are uh, able to be chosen the same way uh, on a Cocoa 3 and running as a Cocoa 2 uh, as they would be done on a Cocoa 2 equipped with that chip. There are a few timing differences in the way the graphics are implemented. So if you have a uh, program that uh, tries to sort of race the beam, shall we say, uh, while drawing VDG graphics, uh, it'll show up a little bit differently on the Cocoa 3. Uh, historically, I think this was only the Dragonfire cartridge. Uh, also, um, the code from my VD tri VDG Tricks blogs 
uh, does some of that. I haven't really tried that on the Cocoa 3, but I suspect that that will not look quite right <laughs> on the Cocoa 3. Uh, but, you know, if you, uh, like I say, if you were following the rules and playing nice with the graphics hardware, then it still should look nice on the Cocoa 3. There are a couple of uh, gimme registers that are still active in even in the Cocoa 1 and 2 mode. Um, or bits really of a reg of registers. Uh, these include the VRES one and zero, and the HRES two bits, uh, and as well as a horizontal offset, I think. So, basically, what this means is you can kick uh, the Coco one and two into a, a 64 character wide display mode. You can also enable more lines per screen. Uh, you know, up to what, 16 or 17 lines. I mean, it's not a lot, but you can, uh, yeah, I guess you can go up to 19 lines. Anyway, the um, use of this is questionable. Uh, if you're going to mess around with code like that, you might as well switch it into the Coco 3's modes and, and use them sort of as intended, but they're there, and if you see use for them, then I'd love to see what you come up with. Uh, one final note on the Cocoa 1 and 2 compatibility mode is the color selection is actually implemented by forcing the selection of certain palettes for certain things. Uh, and so this allows you to uh, do some manipulations and then for some reason you don't like the, 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 the colors that they've decided to map the original VDG colors to, uh, you can change them in the palettes, <laughs> palette registers. You can swap them around. Uh, one thing that's common is the artifact modes don't display correctly on the RGB monitor. So what can be done is uh, you can run a program that uh, manipulates the graphics modes to one of the four color modes and then sets up the register, the palette registers to map to the um, black, white, uh, red or orange and, and blue colors. Uh, that are common for the artifact based games. Uh, there also are, uh, it's not really limited to that. You can uh, do a number of manipulations on the different colors uh, if you don't like them uh, to display uh, the way they've been displayed. Uh, I think maybe, I think maybe Nick Morentis is doing this uh, in his Donut Dilemma game when it detects it's running on a Cocoa 3. I think it might change some of those. Uh, um, P-mode uh, graphics uh, uh, palette choices to uh, something a little easier on the eyes. Um, so anyway, uh, the Coco, the takeaway is the Coco 3 is largely Coco 1 and 2 compatible, not completely compatible, and if you have some code that is mostly Coco 1 or 2 compatible but could stand a few tweaks, there might be some things you could do on the Coco 3. I'm in love with the so, with the compatibility talk out of the way, let's move on to some of the more visible, or perhaps the most visible parts <laughs> of the capabilities in the Gimme. Uh, so, we'll talk about some graphics. Um, obviously, one of the big highlights uh, for the Coco 3 is that the fact that it could display uh, up to 16 colors out of a total palette of 64 colors available. So finally the color computer actually has some color behind it. 
and it wasn't even totally behind the times <laughs> when it came out, although probably still not exactly cutting edge. Anyway, so there's a, a number of, there's 16 pallet registers, each uh, with six bits, uh, two bits each of red, green, and blue that you can specify uh, what RGB colors that you want. There's also a, a border control register with the same style of mapping, six bits. Uh, something that's a little weird about the uh, the pallet registers on the Coco 3, you use the same pallet registers, uh, of course, uh, perhaps, uh, whether you're dealing with RGB output or composite video output, uh, which composite video output uh, is uh, on, NT on NTSC systems, uh, the composite video output is a bit different. Um, the so the, the exact same bit values come out of the register, but they get interpreted in a different way. And so rather than being the six bits of red, green, and blue, um, they are uh, it's four bits of basically a hue value. So it's a, a it's really a direction <laughs> on a wheel, on a color wheel. So it's four bits of hue and two more bits that are a combination of brightness and saturation. Um, the takeaway there is that the program has to know if it's running on uh, composite video, NTSC composite video, or uh, RGB uh, because the the palette values are different. Either that or the, color, the program has to not really care that the colors are going to be different. So you will get a different display Literally, at the same time, you'll get a different color displayed uh, versus your composite video output and your RGB output if you were to run them both at the same time, which you can do. Uh, the, the colors displayed on the the uh, RF output will match what's on the composite video output because it's the RF is basically just a composite signal modulated over radio carrier. So that's a little strange. You know, I think probably what was more common then and certainly what I would have thought they would have done would to just use RGB and then have a chip at the uh, at the end of the out video chain that would take the RGB color and convert them to a composite color signal uh, at the very end but they didn't do that uh, I guess they're probably looking to save you know the 50 cents or, <laughs> or whatever I know they're pretty cost conscious I have no idea what the chip really cost back then I don't think it's particularly expensive um, but they could have used a chip that would have converted the colors and but for whatever reason they didn't so that's a, a a little sideline and that, that's why you have to specify in so many programs whether you have a composite monitor or an RGB monitor is because they're going to write a value to the same register that that has to be different uh, a different value depending on what kind of monitor you're using. So beyond the pallet registers the graphics hardware of course includes the text modes uh, so uh, there were uh, text modes for 32 columns, 40 columns, 64 columns, and 80 columns so the 32 and 64, along with being more convenient for binary math, are probably legacy modes, essentially, uh, dating back to the original Cocos. And then 40 and 80, uh, 80 would have become a standard by then, I think, for for viewing uh, text on the computer screens. 40 would have been sort of an earlier compromise. that A lot of systems had supported 40 columns 
uh, because you could actually read them on a t television at 40 columns, but not at 80 columns. So it probably just made sense to support 40. The Coco 3, which could support uh, the text mode, the Coco 3 specific text modes could support 24, 25, or 28 text lines with variable character heights. And <laughs> and so you could make the characters bigger. So in a in the 24 line base mode you could make the characters bigger so that you could get either 24 or 21 or 19 or 17 and a half characters per line and so then commensurately you get that many more lines <laughs> with the larger line modes I don't know you'd have to work it out but <laughs> suffice it to say there's a fair amount of flexibility in how the characters were displayed um, there were modes both you could have just both a plain text mode and just specify the the character value or uh, you could specify an, an attribute mode where you could specify a second byte per character and they had bits for supporting blink or underline and then they had uh, three more bits for foreground modes and and three more bits for colors for four three bits for foreground colors and and three bits for background colors and then you know that would only be uh you know uh that'll only give you eight choices per so out of the sixteen registers, what they did is basically said the the first half is for i think for foreground, maybe for background, I'm not sure which off the top of my head, but basically one the foreground came from one half of the registers and background came from the other half of the registers um, and so I guess this lets you have uh be similar to those two having different intensities or, or whatever or just completely different colors whatever you wanted moving on to to the uh, bitmap graphics there are a number of resolutions available you could have you could have a mode where that supported either 128 or 64 pixels in either two or four character uh, colors so that's probably 16 bytes per line um, you could move that up to 20 bytes per line for 160 or or 80 pixels in either two or four colors. Um, move that up to uh, 32 bytes per line, so uh, you could have 256, 128, or 64 pixels in two, four, or 16 colors. Um, then what, uh, 40 bytes per line, so that's uh, 30, 20, 160, or 80 pixels in two, four, or 16 colors. Um, so each one of these moves up to a, a larger number of bytes per line. So you go to 512, 256, or 128 pixels in 2, 4, or 16 uh, colors. And again, that's what, 64 bytes per line, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. Um, 640, 320, or 160 pixels in 2, 4, or 16 colors. Um, and I guess uh, the those first two are uh, the H screen three and H screen one uh, equivalents. So 640 uh, by two colors is H screen three, and, and 320 by four colors is H screen one. Let's see. There's a 1,024, 512, or 256 pixels uh, at uh, two, four, or 16 colors, uh, and a uh, 1280. Uh, yeah, that's probably at 128 bytes per line, and so then at 1280, 640, or 320 pixels at 2, 4, or 16 colors, so that's at uh, 160 bytes per line. And so 
the 640 and the 320 of those that represent H green 4 for the 640 and H green 2 for the 320. So that's a lot of different resolutions there. Uh, some of them seem a little questionable uh, and useful. I mean, who really needs 1280 horizontal pixels when you're going to have a maximum of 225 vertical? It's, it seems a little weird. I'm sure you can make some use of it. I have my theories. I'll maybe touch on them a little bit later. Uh, why that was really there, but anyway, it's there. If you think you can make use of it, go for it. Um, vertical resolutions, you could have um, 192, 200, or 225 lines. The 192 lines is used for those various H screen values. The others are not used by BASIC. There is a third setting in that register. There's two bits redefined. So there's a one that was originally for 210 lines, which apparently either doesn't work or requires a lot of a lot of trickery to make it somewhat work or whatever um, I don't know so it, either either there's some stuff that is broken and never got fixed in the gimme or maybe there's some hidden modes there that we just don't know how to use uh, to write for speculation <laughs> alright so scrolling is another nice feature of the graphics on the gimme um, you can do vertical scrolling uh, by setting the start of the buffer. So you can just say, hey, start at this uh, at this byte for the top of the buffer. Um, you can do that up to an 8-byte boundaries. So you can move down 8 bytes at a time, which is more than enough to move down a line, line by line, uh, and position it almost anywhere in memory you want. Like I said, it has to be on an 8-byte boundary. Um, you can do horizontal scrolling in 2-byte increments. So you get uh, basically a 128-bit offset, and it represents 2 bytes uh, each. So a total of 256 bytes uh, for your scrolling. Uh, there's a mode to enable that so that each line of graphics data, uh, instead of when, when you get to the end of the line, instead of going to the very next byte, it kind of rounds up to a 256-byte uh, boundary before fetching the first uh, bit of the ne of the next line. Um, so anyway, that's a cool thing that's used for scrolling and panning, basically, and that way you can do a certain amount of that movement without having to redraw everything. In text mode, there is a line by line vertical smooth scrolling available, so you can basically tell the character generator to uh, to move up a, by a line and. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know how useful this is, but if you ever see, uh, if you ever see text that just smooth scroll, scrolls up, it's, it's instead of going jumping up line by line as it scrolls off the screen, it kind of looks like you're moving a piece of paper up the screen. That's what it's for. Uh, it was a pretty popular thing to do at one point, maybe still is. Um, questionable value, perhaps. Not a very game thing. Let's put it, let's put it that way. <laughs> a few more missed points related to graphics. Um, you can force a monochrome setting, uh, which uh, basically says we, this is only for black and white, and so not only does that, of course, affect RGB, but it will also affect the composite. It's probably more for affecting the composite and RF modes. And so what this does is actually turns off the color burst signal, so, it, so even... Uh, it, it disables the artifact colors uh, so that uh, whereas normally you know with the we're used to specifying a black and white mode and then getting artifact colors out if you set this bit to monochrome only 
you'll only get black and white. So that helps you get kind of a smooth, crisper picture in black and white if that's what you really intend to get. Uh, there is a bit that's used for so selecting between 50 and 60 hertz vertical refresh. Presumably this is used for supporting PAL uh, and, and perhaps CCAM video. Um, you know, not much to be said about it. It might, in some cases, if you have a if you have a monitor that will support 50 hertz, there might be a reasons to turn on 50 hertz because it gives you a a little bit more time per frame for processing. Um, I don't know that uh, it may or may not be useful to you, but uh, <laughs> in some cases, that those extra few lines of of processing uh, while trying to synchronize for a frame can be helpful. One other note is um, on the PAL based color computer 3's even though they had a composite video output that came separate that was separate and distinct from the composite video output from the GIMI and so I assume that the GIMI's composite video outputs just were not hooked up and the PAL color computer 3's actually had circuit to I think a separate circuit board that connected to the RGB video output and uh, like I said they could have used a chip <laughs> so on PAL they did use a chip that would convert the RGB color information to a, a PAL signal and uh, output PAL video that way uh, so causing the question why there was any composite video stuff on the Gimme at all um, I don't know Maybe it was done in a. Maybe there's a good reason, or maybe it was just sort of done in the seat of the pants kind of way, without thought about PAL. Uh, certainly didn't think quite as much about international business back in the day. Although I think Tandy probably would have been thinking about that. I don't know. It's a it's a weird oddity. Anyway, that pretty much covers uh, at least the the highlights of the graphical capabilities of the Gimme. Hi, I'm Kevin Savitz of Antic, the Atari 8-Bit Podcast. You're listening to the Coco Crew. When you're ready to play with a real computer, play with an Atari. Moving on, let's talk about the I in Gimme, which stands for interrupts. So the Coco 3 slash Gimme <laughs> supports, of course, the, the same basic sources of interrupts that were available on the Coco 1 and 2. So that's the vertical sync and horizontal sync and the cartridge port. Uh, not a lot to be said about that, except that the, these values are being generated separately and distinctly from the PIAs. There's, in addition to those interrupt sources on the Coco 3, there's also a, a keyboard interrupt source. Uh, also can cover the joystick buttons. Apparently the original 86 version of the Gimme uh, had some sort of bug with related to the keyboard interrupt, so maybe not the best thing to rely on <laughs> uh, if you're writing code unless you know exactly what your code's going to run on but anyway it is there uh, there's also an interrupt source available through the serial port so, so presumably you know so back in the time when the Coco 3 was released uh, modeming was a uh, a very popular computer hobby uh, activity so serial port uh, performance was an important thing because uh, time is money and <laughs> especially when you're on a long distance phone call so supporting a higher speed uh, serial port probably seemed like a very important thing to do um, I don't know how well that interrupt source works but it probably doesn't hurt let's put it that way what I think is probably the most important new interrupt source on the 
uh, gimme is that there's a, a high resolution timer available. Um, so you have a timer and can select between two timing sources. One's either, uh, I have it as um, 279.365 nanoseconds or the other is um, I have it as 63.695 microseconds so two different granularities note also that uh, a lot of the literature the technical literature around the gimme says that the the faster one is, is 70 nanoseconds um, but it does not seem to be the case so I'm not sure how that little error slipped in but uh, Sockmaster's reference and my own experience with the writing the uh, Coca 3 video player suggests that the that that 279 nanoseconds is the correct number anyway these time the timer source is one timer source and especially a countdown timer so you write a value to it and then every time one of those you select which one of those clock sources you want and then every time that clock you know cycles uh, it counts down your timer and when it hits zero it'll pop the interrupt so that's a nice feature to have. It's probably the best use I know of it for in a general sense is to use it for playing uh, uh, audio and uh, it's a very nice way because you can uh, reroute it. You can route it to the fast interrupt uh, inter the fast interrupt fast IRQ source and play audio with it. It's uh, it's a pretty cool thing to do, <laughs> and so it, you can actually have in-game music on the Coco 3 uh, a lot easier than you can on a Coco 1 or 2. Um, so as I kind of alluded to there on the on the Gimme chip, all of these interrupt sources can be routed uh, to either the IRQ signal or the FIRQ signal. So if you have something that's going to fire a lot, like like that high-resolution timer for using audio. Um, you can uh, hook that to the fast IRQ source, and then if you have something slower, you know, uh, whatever's hooked it up to the card, or, or maybe maybe your incoming serial port, or uh, I don't know, joystick presses, whatever, you can hook those up to to uh, the IRQ signal, and uh, you know, process your interrupts as you wish. So that's a nice feature. Uh, one other point, the gimme interrupts are actually run in parallel to the CPU uh, interrupt lines uh, in parallel with the outputs from the uh, original PIAs. So they're still out there. They're still out there trying to generate uh, IRQs from H-Sync or V-Sync if you've told them to do so, uh, or uh, FIRQs from the from CART. Um, and... Uh, I guess it was what CD or something that it was hooked up to. Anyway, they're still out there, and they can uh, still hold the interrupt lines however they want. So, uh, if you're writing interrupt code on the Coco 3, you need to make sure that you're accounting for what the PIAs are doing, um, and so that you don't enable an interrupt source that you don't want. <laughs> uh, and if for some reason you do want to use the PA interrupts and not the the uh, gimme interrupts. The, it's an option. I'm not sure why you would want that, but maybe, uh, you know, it's your code. Do it how you want. Anyway, I think that pretty much covers the interrupts on the Gimme. Um, another major feature of the Gimme is the M part, is the memory mapping. Um, a lot of the literature refers to it as an MMU, or memory management unit. I think uh, computer architecture has advanced uh, 
beyond the, the mid-80s to the point where when you say an MMU, you're kind of implying something a bit more advanced than what's on the Coco 3. You're kind of implying something with a certain amount of memory protection uh, and, uh, you know, features related to that. Um, so what, what we really have is a bank switcher. Uh, so you have a, a number of registers um, that uh, you can write out um, uh, basically the, the the top parts of addresses to use so that when uh, when when you access a certain eight bit eight k range uh, it'll go and and pop on uh, use that that six bit value as the the uh, top of the physical address range and so that everybody can have their own address space. Uh, whoever's running, you know, whatever task is running at the time. So, memory is divided into 8K banks, and so then you have eight uh, uh, six-bit bank selects active at any time. And then there's actually two task sets available, so you can easily switch between two complete sets of of bank selects uh, with just a flip of a bit. So that's useful for when you have a, an operating system versus a user task like in OS 9 uh, or, you know, Fuzzix or whatever you're running. <laughs> you can uh, um, easily switch the memory mapping with just a flick of a bit between the system and the, the running application. Um, but like I said, there's no memory protection. A task can change its own memory mapping settings whenever it wants. Um, and in so doing, can clobber memory or whatever. So uh, you still have to be uh, kind of aware of the system. And if you are if you are trying to run with different tasks, uh, different uh, processes, uh, code developed separately, then they have to respect each other's boundaries. Because, uh, again, there's no memory protection available through the gimme. Uh, and, of course, no support in the 6809 for it anyway. <laughs> uh, the gimme can support uh, mapping modes so that you can support up to a 32K cartridge ROM. Uh, the original Coco 1 and 2, I guess, could only support 16K's worth of cartridge ROM. And, let's see, uh, in the Coco 1 and 2, the, the SAM would reserve a FFOO through FFFF for I.O. Uh, the gimme supports... Uh, uh, Adding to that also FEOO to FEFF, so you can have a, an extra 256 bytes of I.O. reserved if you want. I'm not sure if anything actually makes use of that, but it's there if you need it. Uh, and then one more thing is the spare cartridge select, that, that FF4O uh, select that uh, the SAM provides. That can be turned off in the gimme. Again, I'm not entirely sure why that's useful. Um, but somebody must have thought it would be useful for something. So if anybody knows how that's used, I'd love to hear it. So that's the, there's the I and the M. And uh, uh, E is for enhancements, but I'm going to call it extra. So I've got <laughs> a few more extra bits to cover here. Um, so there have been prototypes uh, of the Coco 3 that have been shown at the Coco Fest. These were the machines that were actually delivered by Dandy to Microware. Uh, to assist in development of the ROMs for the Super Extended Color Basic. And they're very large PCBs. I think they're dual-sided PCBs. They might they might be multi more layers than that. But um, they're very large. Uh, they have sort of an ancient feel to them. <laughs> I've touched them. They're very uh, thrilling. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, Alan Huffman helped liberate those and 
at one point he had them lent to uh, Mark Marlette. I don't know if Mark has returned them to, to Alan or if he still has them. Um, the notion, of course, is that uh, it might be worthwhile to reverse engineer uh, the circuits there for a variety of reasons. One, just to understand the gimme better. Um, but two, there's a, there's a rumor uh, or conjecture that perhaps, at least at one point, the gimme had support for a, a uh, 256 color uh, mode. So an 8-bit color mode uh, in uh, inside the gimme that uh, has been rumored uh, to exist. Uh, Nick Marentis did a lot of research on that. He uh, has a web page dedicated to it. We'll have that linked in the show notes. Um, basically, he and Sockmaster identified something on a block diagram uh, published for the internals of the gimme and sort of said, well, what is that and what does that mean? And kind of went from there and... and Nick at least at one point seemed pretty convinced that excuse the bell that the gimme included a uh, a another memory mode that would support an 8-bit color encoding um, but you know nobody's managed to find it so one of the things is with the prototypes is maybe if that mode ever existed maybe it's there at the uh, on the board for the coco so those 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 prototype boards don't have gimme asics on them they have the gimme chip you know, laid out in 74 series logic and, and such, or discrete logic. There's, I'm sure there's some PALs and stuff in there too. <laughs> but So that would be an interesting thing to reverse engineer that board. I don't think that... Uh, we just don't have the manpower, I think, to do it, but it, it hasn't really been done in any kind of formal way, at least not as far as I know. But it's out there, and uh, maybe someday we'll learn all there is to know about the original uh, gimme implementation. Now, in the realm of... Uh, uh, in a similar realm, um, what is true is that in those horizontal resolutions that that are beyond 160 uh, characters, which also includes the basically the, the 128, uh, the 128 and 160, mostly both are kind of in the same space. Uh, they occupy the same color clocks, and basically the 160 just sort of extends farther out on the sides. Anyway, 160 is really the magic number in NTSC. That's how many color clocks are supported uh, in an NTSC signal. And a uh, color clock is kind of like a pixel uh, in that that's how often you can choose uh, how uh, what color is going to be displayed on the screen. But it's kind of not like a pixel because it doesn't, by itself, it doesn't specify luminance. So you get kind of a weird thing in composite video signals. What is a pixel versus, <laughs> you know, colors versus pixels? It's a, sort of a different thing. The point of that, that I'm making is all those horizontal modes, uh, horizontal resolution modes I mentioned earlier that were, you know, a 1,280 horizontal pixels or, you know, even uh, 640 or 1,024, uh, even 320. Um, all of those, when they're displayed on the composite video output, when, which includes the RF output, those will trigger an, an artifact color, uh, assuming you haven't disabled the color burst. Um, and so uh, you can get, on an NTSC video display, you can get a lot more colors um, on a Coco 3 through some some manipulations of the palette registers and setting up one of these 
ultra high horizontal resolution modes. Um, and like I said, at most you really only get 160 colors on the screen, but uh, you know, still with the with the, the various uh, manipulations available, you can get essentially eight bits worth of color uh, put out uh, in these virtual pixels. Uh, done code. That, several people have done some code that displays this effect. I did a video on YouTube that uh, gives my understanding of how it works. Uh, so I'll include a link to that in the show notes uh, for those of you that are interested. Let's see, another note is that there were two versions of the Gimme available. I mentioned uh, that uh, there was a problem with the keyboard slash joystick interrupt source. Um, that apparently led to Tandy doing a respin of the chip, and I'm not sure what other uh, uh, items might have been addressed. I know there was something about sparklies in the video that basically if you access memory at certain times it would uh, show up with little video artifacts that the 87 chip I think uh, is supposed to have taken care of. So anyway, there are, there are two versions of the Gimme out there. I think a lot of people have tried to replace their 86 Gimmies with 87 ones. Uh, but you will still see 86 gimmies out there quite a bit. I don't know that I would rush to replace an 86 with an 87 if I wasn't having problems, but um, it probably is worthwhile to do if you do have an 87 available somehow. Uh, I'm not sure I would kill any Coco 3s to... to <laughs> sure, I'm sure I would not kill any 87 Coco 3s to revive an 86 Coco 3, but... Maybe somebody would think that's a good idea. I don't know. Anyway, there are two versions out there. You might take a look. Uh, that, some of that information is detailed in, in Bill and Boise's book. One more note. Uh, occasionally you'll see somebody reference that, oh, the, there's no Pia's on, on the Coco 3. Uh, the the Gimme just, uh, just snoops the bus and, and accepts all the rights to the Pia's. Well, that's not true. The Pia's are there. They're on the motherboard. You can see them. Um... What is true is that one of the PIAs, the one that normally would have that has the pins that would talk to uh, the control pins on the VDG on a Coco One or Two, those pins are not connected to anything on the Coco Three, or at least that's how it's shown in the schematics. And so the the Gimme is snooping the rights to that one port, and then translating them to whatever compatibility. Um, settings it has to do internally to support the Coco style of video modes. But that P is still there. There's been some conjecture that could you possibly hook up a circuit that talks to those pins and do something with them. Um, I'm not really sure uh, if anybody's tried that. I'm not sure if that would work. It seems to me like, well, if it did work, it'd probably screw up your video <laughs> because the Gimme's still going to snoop the rights to that location, but I'm not sure. Maybe there's something that could be done there. It's probably worth investigating. If you've tried doing anything with that, I would love to hear about it. So that's pretty much it. Uh, I did one on, when I was doing all this research, I kept stumbling across this, uh, the number six. <laughs> I don't want to sound like some sort of crazy numerologist, but, uh, you know, there's a, a number of little places here. Uh, you know, of course, the original Coco DAC is six bits. The uh, memory bank selects uh, in the uh, Gimme's MMU are 6 bits. There's 6 interrupt sources that can be mapped to either IRQ or FIRQ. The palette width is 6 bits. So I have to wonder, was there some sort of weird 
number six worshiper working <laughs> at the Tandy Towers in the 80s? I don't know. That's a little strange. Um, obviously, that's a bit silly, but uh, I don't know. I just couldn't help but uh, remark on how the number six kept showing up. Anyway, that's probably enough of that. I hope you enjoyed my ramblings about the gimme. No doubt I've missed any number of things. It is a complicated chip. Um, feel free to send us feedback to the show, feedback at CocoCrew.org. You can send hate mail to me directly, john at CocoCrew.org. Um, and uh, write us something on the Facebook page, whatever. Um, if you have any projects involving the Coco 3, especially any that, that touch on any of the technical details either presented here or especially if there's technical details I've missed that you're working on a project that tickles, I would love to hear about it. So let us know. Send us something on the Facebook group. Send us some email. Um, look me up on the telephone and call me. <laughs> Whatever. All right. Well, thanks. I hope you enjoyed it. And um, I'm not sure what we'll talk about uh, next time. Uh, pretty much done with the describing Cocoa architecture, but maybe we'll talk about uh, some of the peripherals or I'm not sure what else, but I'm sure we'll find something. So anyway, Cocoa forever. Take care. Please, Please select your monitor type. Get ready, player one. All right. Welcome back to another edition of The Games Corner. On this episode, I'm going to go all out and review a game for the Color Computer 3 that I've always found fascinating. The game is called The Contras. It is published by Sundog Systems. Now, anybody that knows Sundog Systems, they were a publisher that always released super high-end games that pushed the Coco to the limits. Even going back to the earlier days with the Coco 1 and 2, they always released games that would be close to arcade quality with digital speech and animation. Usually requiring the Coco to have maxed out RAM such as 64K on the Coco 1 and 2 and 512K on the Coco 3. The Contras, I am sure you can guess, is a clone of the game Contra. It is a platformer style game with side-scrolling levels. The object is fairly simple. Get through each level by walking to the right while dodging and blowing up enemies. At the end of each level there's a boss you must defeat before you can make it on to the next level. This version of Contra for the Coco is a very interesting conversion. Rather than being based on the arcade version, it is a close copy of the Nintendo NES console version, which I am okay with because I've always preferred the Nintendo version over the arcade one. It takes advantage of two button joysticks, one for fire and one for jumping. It also supports two players at the same time. This is kind of a breakthrough, not many Color Computer 3 games supported this feature. It has six levels in total, just like the Nintendo version. However, only the first three levels are from the Nintendo version. The other three are modified levels from the first three, and unfortunately due to a messy development history, this game only has two music tracks and is also missing four power-up weapons out of six. While playing the game, you can actually see and get the power-ups, but they don't activate or do anything. The game can also be a bit buggy at times. A little bit of history about this game. Apparently what happened is the original developer stopped working on this game back in 1991. Then it was passed off to another coder to finish the game. The new coder had never finished someone else's work before and had to get familiar with the game code. It was eventually released in 1993 and was distributed only through mail order. It is practically impossible to find a physical copy of the Contras today. I can't ever recall seeing a copy for sale on the Coco list or on eBay for that matter. So if you have a copy and would like to sell it, please drop me a line. Don't own the original? Well, luckily there is a disc image available on the Coco Archive website. The disc image is heavily copy protected, but if you have a Coco SDC, you'll be able to play it with no problems, assuming your Coco 3 has 512K in it. My final thoughts on this game are, despite the shortcomings, it is still a super fun game to play. 
It really is impressive and probably one of the most ambitious Coco 3 games ever attempted, making use of multi-voice music and sound effects, horizontal scrolling, large maps, and dual-player modes. And it also doesn't have black borders like a lot of the other similar side-scrolling Coco 3 games from the same time. And after all, we can't complain. At least this game was eventually released for all of us to enjoy. Who knows, perhaps someday we may see The Last Ninja get released either finished or unfinished for a fellow Coco coder to take on as a project. Well, I hope you enjoyed this month's episode of The Games Corner. Until next month, game on. Get ready, player two. Well, it's that time again. We have reached the end of episode six. Wow, seven episodes in the bag already. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please keep your feedback coming in. I would like to thank my host, John Linville, for providing the Gimme Chip tech segment. I have to say, this has been my favorite tech segment yet. The Gimme Chip has always been a mystery to me. We also would like to thank all of you for listening. You really are the most important part of the show. If we didn't have you, it would be a bit silly for John and I to be talking to ourselves. Stay tuned for next month's show, and until then, happy cocoing.